0: do we want to say okay there's this body of knowledge that we, we're saying is highly valued and everyone has to learn it even if you know they don't really want to um in order to kind of reduce the inequalities between people or do we want to say well actually that idea of there being sort of one valued body of knowledge is itself just sort of creating an inequality where one doesn't need to necessarily exist
1: Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast, or welcome back, perhaps. There have been many brilliant quotes on the Rethinking Education podcast over the last few months, and I know we shouldn't have favorites. And indeed, I don't, but if I did, the one that featured at the start of this episode would be among them for sure. Today's episode features my conversation with Dr. Amelia Peterson, and it's a brilliant example of a rethinking education conversation. It certainly got my cogs whirring, both when we spoke and when I listened back to it in the edit suite. I'll introduce Amelia in a moment, but first I would like to briefly mention a program that's been running on BBC Radio 4 this week, with a strangely familiar title, would you believe it is called Rethink Education. I've listened to the first two episodes so far. And in my view, it does a pretty good job of capturing the key challenges and tensions in the contemporary education debate, in England at least, framing the current policy environment as having shifted from vocational education for some to a knowledge-rich curriculum for all. There's a slightly strange moment in the first episode where a teacher questions whether there has even been a shift to a knowledge-rich curriculum, which is kind of curious because it's pretty much all I see and hear. Maybe I need to broaden my echo chamber somewhat. And later on in that same episode, that same teacher lent his strong support for exams, saying, if we get rid of exams, what would be the point of schools? Which I thought was interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, nobody, like literally nobody, is saying that we should get rid of exams. And I should know because I'm in regular contact with many of the people on the radical fringes of the education debate. And so to argue that we shouldn't get rid of them is a bit of a straw man. But I thought it was also fascinating to observe that people do find it really difficult to think beyond exams. What would happen if we got rid of them altogether? Just as an imagination exercise, what would happen? Would kids stop going to school? Would people stop learning things altogether? What kinds of things would people choose to learn about? These are fascinating questions, listeners, and I would be very interested to hear your thoughts. You can join the conversation on the Rethinking Education Mighty Network, which is free to join and is now full to bursting with innovative educators' parents and carers and young people from all over the world. There are links in the show notes if you wish to join us. The water is lovely, I can vouch for that. All in all, this radio programme with a strangely familiar title, I would say is well worth a listen. It was certainly nice to hear that there was lots of love for learning to learn at the start of the first episode. If you want to learn more about learning to learn, And why wouldn't you? I really recommend listening to some previous episodes of this podcast. For example, the episodes with Guy Claxton, Rachel McFarlane and the one featuring my amazing friend Kate McAllister. And also the most recent episode, which was a cross post from a podcast called From Page to Practice, which featured readers from all over the world saying lovely things about a book that I co-authored with Kate, which was entitled Fear is the Mind Killer why learning to learn deserves lesson time and how to make it work for your pupils. The book was released in November last year, which at the time was the most harrowing school term in living memory (laughs) until the next one. And so it wasn't great timing to release a doorstop of a book about how we should do things fundamentally differently. People were kind of a little bit overwhelmed at that point and have been ever since. But it does now seem that people are starting to find the time to read this book and to engage with its ideas. We're starting to get contacted from people all over the world. And we're now working with a number of schools to help them develop similar approaches. And that is a wonderful thing indeed. And while I'm talking about the work that I do as well, I'd also like to mention as a heads up that I'm currently absolutely immersed in writing a new online course about implementation science which I am super excited about and which will be launched in the coming weeks. Watch this space. Okay, and so to today's guest. Amelia Peterson is currently an LSE fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she teaches social policy. She completed her PhD in education policy and program evaluation at Harvard University, where she was an inequality and social policy fellow. During her studies prior to that, she was a junior visiting scholar at Nuffield College, Oxford, and she holds a master's degree in human development and psychology, also from Harvard. And we'll talk about that and how she worked with some absolute giants from the world of learning to learn when she was there. Amelia studies education and skills policies and their interactions with wider societal processes. Her PhD dissertation traced the institutional changes associated with the devocationalization of secondary education, which is what I mentioned briefly earlier this idea that there has been a bonfire of vocational qualifications in the last sort of 10 years, mainly under Michael Gove when he was the Secretary of State as part of this shift towards knowledge-rich curriculum and end-of-year terminal exams. There was also a shift away from coursework to terminal end-of-year exams. Anyway, back to Amelia. So her work is mainly about how political and social factors impact policy implementation. And she recently co-authored an absolutely brilliant book with Valerie Hannon, which is called Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World, which we discuss at length in the first hour or so of this episode. Amelia's research draws in part on her experience working with education practitioners and system leaders across a wide range of countries and as an associate of Innovation Unit, which is a non-profit consultancy which came out of, it used to be part of the DFE, I think, the Department of Education. As I said, Amelia is currently an LSE fellow because she is soon to become a founding faculty member of a really exciting new organisation, a new university in London called the London Interdisciplinary School or LIS, which opens its doors to students for the first time later this year, in fact, in about two months. We explore some of the thinking behind LIS in this episode, but just as a heads up, well, as the name suggests, it's an interdisciplinary university where students learn joined up thinking rather than being funneled away into highly specific subject specialisms. It's a super smart idea. And I was really excited to hear about such a forward thinking contemporary example of super smart people rethinking education in such a powerful way. Okay, I'll stop jabbering now and I will hand over to my recent conversation with Amelia Peterson, which, as I say, mainly centers at the start around this brilliant book, which I strongly urge you to get your hands on a copy of Thrive The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World. Amelia Peterson, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast.
0: It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Wonderful to to spend some time with you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for for quite a long time now, and there's so much (laughs) that that I want to talk with you about. It's sort of difficult to know where to begin. Um, But let's start with this book that you have recently published and that you co-authored with Valerie Hannon, Thrive the purpose of schools in a changing world, it's really nice to, like, lots of the people that I speak with um on the podcast, are sort of rethinking education in various ways. But it's really nice to speak with somebody who's who's rethinking education so sort of explicitly <laughs> uh in, in all that you do and and in in this book in particular. So let's go back to later on we'll we'll talk about you know your early life and your own experience of education and so on before we get into the to the rethinking education part of the conversation. But I'd like to 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 ask you to to begin by going back to the start of Thrive, how did this book come about and how did you come to meet and know Valerie?
0: Yeah, sure. So I was working with Valerie at Innovation Unit, which was um, an organisation she helped kind of co-found. It used to be part of the Department for Education um, in in the UK. And then it sort of spun out and became an independent um, uh, non-profit uh, consultancy, I guess. And um, one of the big projects we had was something called the Global Education Leaders Partnership, which was um, essentially a, a leadership development network, um, partly funded by the Gates Foundation, sort of in the days when when they were doing that kind of thing, um, that involved teams of, of um, system leaders, so typically kind of policymakers, people who were running arm's length agencies, things like the curriculum body in a country or the qualification body in a country, um, And it was a group of jurisdictions, so sometimes countries, sometimes kind of provinces or states with responsibilities for education, who were interested in um, system transformation. So sort of quite grand ideas about about (laughs) rethinking education. Um, And the premise of it was that everybody was saying, um, OK, we know we want to do something different, but we don't know quite what it is yet. This was around 2010 that it started. So a lot of ideas around how kind of technology was changing education. Um, not really at that point a lot of a focus on on climate. A lot more was about uh, yeah, really sort of how how technology and in particular the kind of wide availability of information online would change or, or might need to change uh, what was happening in schools. Um, and and through those years of working with with gelp and with innovation unit uh it became clear particularly to valerie that while while there was a lot of consensus about the sort of um some of the ideas of what what different might look like um kind of latent in that was a lot of thinking about well what really is the the purpose of schooling um and in some jurisdictions that was kind of very formally clarified so um some places like in, in british columbia and Um, To some extent in Australia at that point, they'd done a lot of clear thinking about, you know, what do we really want from schools? Um, I remember we were working with Delhi and they had a, the kind of Delhi government had a very clear idea of sort of the role of values in education. But in other places, it was sort of, it was just very latent. And this was a period where in England, um, the kind of aims of the curriculum had been sort of explicitly written out in the process of, of the curriculum reform. And so Valerie got to a point where she just sort of thought, we need to we need to really start talking more explicitly about purpose. We need to sort of put that back in the conversation. Um, and so she initially developed the framework that is the four levels of thriving, um, with the idea that it's at the kind of intrapersonal, so the sort of inside us, are our own set sense of purpose, um, interpersonal, kind of about our relationships, um, social and, and societal, and then also kind of global and planetary um and and over the years between the start of gelp and when and when she was first starting to work on that framework, that emphasis on what would it really take to kind of thrive as a as a planet and um, what would it take to kind of sustain our our ecosystems um had become more and more important for her and so when I had the opportunity to to work on the book with her um yeah i was I was just really excited about the chance to to sort of step back from a lot of the the kind of how of education and really think about like, what are we, what are we actually trying to do here?
1: Mm, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite the read. It's really phenomenal. I feel like you've done all of the homework that I never sort of got around to quite doing. It's so meticulously researched and very well written and very well argued and like you say, so so it's organised around these four levels of of um, at which we can think about thriving, um, and so you, it's interesting. So so because most people would think that I like the, the way that it starts with the person first of all, that it places the person at the centre of this. So intrapersonal and then interpersonal then societal and then planetary and global, but in the global, but in the book, it sort of takes a reverse order, doesn't it? So it starts with like, what does a thriving world look like? And then you sort of work your way back down to the, to the person.
0: Yeah. And I think that was, that was very intentional. And and it's interesting to see which people feel more drawn to. I think for some of us, it's naturally, well, like, you know, unless we can sustain our planet, like what future do we have? And for others, you know, unless we can um, sort of sustain ourselves and sort of keep going, then how can we possibly do anything for our planet? So, so I think it, yeah, it is very much intentional that it can it can work both ways, um, and and then for schools as well, I think depending maybe on what kind of age of um, you know children or, or students one's working with, um, it can make more sense to sort of start at different points.
1: Mm. Okay. So, so shall we work our way through them? Let, let's, let's just sort of briefly touch on each one and we'll, we'll do it in the order that it, that it happens in the book. So I think it sort of makes sense that you kind of want to change the world and it ends with the realization that you need to change yourself. Um, and so that that seems to make sense for me. So let's think about about a thriving planet. And so in the book, you talk about a number of pathfinders at each of these different levels. Can you explain what you mean by pathfinders? And then maybe we'll get into the first one. Some ideas around pathfinders for a thriving planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the idea, the idea of the pathfinders was to show the schools that are already trying to kind of put a a broader sense of purpose or perhaps a different sense of purpose at the core of what they do. Um, and these weren't particularly hard to find. You know, many, many schools already do a lot of thinking about what they're trying to do with their young people, um, more or less hindered or supported by the systems that they're part of. Um, but we really wanted to show that, you know, okay, you can you can do all this research and all this thinking about sort of what are the, the, the challenges that we're going to have to grapple with as societies as a planet Um, and that can start to seem very overwhelming and so then we also wanted to provide some ideas of okay well what can this actually look like in practice um so that's that's what those chapters are about.
1: Yeah, thank you. And so, I mean it might be difficult to to sort of to sum it up because it's obviously a little while since you wrote the book, but can, off the top of your head, can you think of some examples um I mean I could point to some if you like um of ideas for of, of schools that are that are educating for a thriving planet.
0: Yeah, I know sure. It, it it is all still quite quite fresh in mind, seared on the mind. <laughs> um yeah, and and this sort of really went in two directions because with the with the planetary thriving on the one hand, there's you know the the kind of reality of, of climate change, and how can schools think about uh, what it means to educate young people who, in their lifetimes, probably are really going to have to to grapple with this on on a daily basis. Um, and so that was looking at some schools who have just sort of tried to um, build in teaching about the ecosystem that they're part of into some of what they're doing and this is everything from you know just schools that are able to have like some kind of community garden um, or growing some sort of food um, uh, around them to also those that are thinking in terms of the curriculum and like what does it really look like to look at not just the the knowledge that you're teaching in your curriculum but also sort of how you're approaching that Um, and one of the comparisons we make in there is that you know, when we when we teach, for example, in history about something like genocide, we don't sort of just teach it as a set of facts. We, we have a certain value orientation to it. We, we teach it as something you know, horrific and awful that has happened in, in human history and that we really earnestly want to try to avoid. And so likewise, I think, you know, in, in science, in geography, when we're teaching about the, the knowledge that is relevant to climate change, I think we do have some kind of onus to, to approach it with a certain kind of value orientation, that this is something we have a certain kind of responsibility to avoid. And I think we have sometimes in education felt a bit more hesitant about allowing that value orientation into the sciences um, because, you know, historically there, there have been um, a lot of clashes between kind of science and values. Um, but I think it's something where now we, yeah, we sort of, we have a responsibility to, to allow that in a bit more. Um, and then the other side of the planetary is, is thinking about the kind of gl- global and more sort of global relationships. Um, and we're <laughs> slightly hung with this phrase of global competence that has become popular and is used at the OECD level in the, in the latest PISA assessments. I don't love the phrase global competence, but I think mm. it does stand for something important that having the um, the kind of mental models of how to think about what it means to be, interdependent in terms of our societies in terms of our cultures and and to have a sort of orientation towards being curious about other cultures and having the kind of the vocabulary and the dispositions and the and the practices to to move between different cultures to to um learn from and with people from other cultures um is is the the core of what we mean by global competence
1: Yes, I, I share with you the reservation about about that phrase, or the, <laughs> the language of competence is either. Although I suppose if you think of the flip, <laughs> the alternative is fit for global incompetence. And, uh, you know...
0: Yeah, it does make it a little bit clearer. We want to avoid...
1: Incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it should be called, avoiding global incompetence. Um, yeah, yeah, I like it. And, and you know, there's an interesting point. You quoted somebody in the book in that chapter as saying that, you know, you need to be careful because it's sort of, it's easy to things to just sound quite hippie-ish and it's like okay we're sort of we're doing things that this is you know we're educating for a brighter future but it's sort of it can sometimes seem a little bit hazy on the detail but as you say you know you've gone into you've gone into um some some you know really quite granular detail about what these schools are doing and also not just about you know about for example you know you gave the example of having gardens and growing food but also about how you might structure particular you know um history modules where you're thinking about how to sequence knowledge and how to how to structure it in such a way that there's a global perspective being addressed as well as you know learning the particularities of some period of history um i mean it really makes sense and when when i think back to you know to my time as a science teacher um you know we we probably did about three lessons on global warming <laughs> in year 9 as i recall and um, you know it's a while since i taught science and so that might have changed since then but It didn't feel like there was very much joined up thinking about like having a global ecosystem that we, you know, and even local ecosystems. It didn't feel like it was particularly joined up. Um, And so I think that there's a long way that we could go in terms of thinking about how we organize curriculum with the global perspective in mind
0: yeah and i think i think it really is a curriculum question you know i i <laughs> likewise at school had had the sort of few lessons on on climate change on energy use but i really remember them because i think you do return to that knowledge because i feel like it's very very relevant knowledge and then i think of how many lessons i haven't really returned to because they haven't they haven't really been bits of knowledge that i kind of needed in my life, and obviously that's slightly different for different people. But I think there is more and more of a consensus now that look these understandings of um, of climate and of energy and sustainability and how they interact is is going to be quite crucial for everybody just to be able to sort of grasp um, what's going on. So I think there, yeah, there is an onus then to to make sure that it's covered in the curriculum, as you say, like in in sufficient conceptual detail that we're really getting into the the um, The detail of it and yeah not just sort of skimming over the surface with a few a few experiences once or twice Mm,
1: yeah okay okay so let's move on to the next level down which is um thriving societies um and so in this chapter it focuses quite a lot on on stem as in uh, science technology engineering and math and also steam where there's art in there um why is it that that stem and steam feature so centrally in this in this thinking um around thriving societies?
0: Yeah this is a great question because i think it shows sort of how some of the movements that have been trying to respond to the kind of changes that have been happening in the world have have evolved and kind of um taken on a certain uh character or a certain label um that maybe hides what's really going on there. So with the societal thriving there are again kind of two parts to it one of which is um uh, more about democracy and sort of how do we kind of reimagine democracy and the other which is more about the world of work and what does it mean to sort of prepare people for for different kinds of work and that's really about kind of bringing bringing back in a lot of the technical and practical sides of learning that um have been sometimes excluded from school sometimes Um, whenever they're in the first place and I think STEM and then you know hopefully increasingly STEAM have become the umbrellas that are often the places where that sort of bringing back in of the technical and practical is happening Um, often because when engineering is brought into play in the school environments that is kind of really creating the opportunity for people to um, to work on real problems um, in school environments and to kind of bring different pieces of knowledge together uh, and, and yeah, apply them. Um, so although it, you know, often is happening under that umbrella, I think what's really key there is that kind of bringing together of different areas of knowledge and applying them, really doing something with them, um, uh, towards kind of working on real problems.
1: Yeah. And this links, doesn't it? I think maybe we'll come onto this later, but it might be worth flagging it at this point. So you currently work at the, is it called the London Interdisciplinary School?
0: Yeah sure so I'm I'm just transitioning over I've been working at LSE and um, yeah uh, LIS London Interdisciplinary School um, opens in September with the first cohort of students.
1: Just while we're talking because it seems that it fits quite nice in with the idea of STEAM of being this sort of cross-disciplinary thing would you like to just sort of explain a little bit about what the rationale is behind this this uh, organization?
0: Yeah absolutely I mean and it is very much um, similar similar rationale so it's uh, new university creating an undergraduate program um, which is a bachelor's in arts and sciences Um, so there are a few of these basque degrees already in the UK but this is the first institution that is really designed around kind of making that model fully work. Um, The the undergraduate degree is shaped around um, problems and methods so on the one hand students are studying kind of major complex problems so issues that have a lot of interconnected um, disciplines and areas of knowledge in them and they take different disciplinary perspectives on that and then kind of learn how to integrate those um, and then in methods modules they're studying a range of kind of quantitative and qualitative methods so just getting tooled up in how to investigate the world uh, and how to communicate knowledge um, and how to you know have an impact on people in a range of different ways.
1: mm it's such a brilliant idea and just such a necessary idea. And My son is a little way away from, from university age, but I think I'm going to start leaving brochures open <laughs> on various surfaces in his bedroom because it just looks like such a smart way to... Like, it's ridiculous, isn't it? When we're talking about rethinking education, the way in which you do nine subjects at, you know, at age 14, you whittle it down to three subjects if you go on to A-level at age 16, and then at age 18, you're down to one. And there's there's no problems that I can see really in the world that are are like single variable problems (laughs) that are going to be fixed by people with a degree in one particular specialism. It's just obvious that we need to be more divergent at the university level.
0: Yeah, and I think this is um, the difference in thinking about, well, what is it that we want kind of one person to understand versus what is the kind of knowledge that we want to have across a whole society? So I think... You know, we're certainly not saying at LAS that, you know, disciplines are sort of done with and we don't need them. We absolutely need them. That's sort of how knowledge is developed and created. But I think what we also need is that knowledge about how to kind of integrate things. We sometimes talk about interactional expertise, sort of what's the level of expertise you need to be able to uh, talk to, understand things that are happening in different fields and then kind of bring it back and try to bring it together with other areas of knowledge and so we're just trying to rebalance things a little to ensure that there are some people who are prepared with more of that knowledge about how to integrate along with the people who are prepared with you know how to create knowledge within particular disciplines
1: yeah yeah um like I say, it's a brilliant thing. So, so 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 let's come back to um to the thriving societies level and this this idea of STEAM. Um can you think of any particular STEAM projects that really sort of caught your imagination as you were researching the book and you thought, wow, that's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think where this gets most exciting is where it's in schools that have been able to kind of partner a lot with organizations in their surrounding environment. And I think this is where um, some of the possibilities do start to press up against the kind of limitations of the systems that schools are situated within. You know, we know uh, working in schools, it's incredibly difficult to find the kind of time and space to really do that sort of partnering in a serious way unless it has been built into the curriculum, almost unless it's like fully accepted by the accountability um, system that one is working within, because otherwise I think it it does tend to just be sort of pushed a little bit to the sidelines. So, you know, we know in England there are schools that manage to do this um, to a certain extent within Key Stage 3, um, to a certain extent at primary, but it really gets difficult once you get to the GCSE years to kind of find any decent chunks of time to, to work on things more locally um, and therefore to, you know, to kind of build up those local partnerships. So in that chapter, we end up focusing a lot on US examples because um, at the high school level, at the ages of sort of 14 to 18, 19, as young people are really kind of, um, they've developed the, the knowledge and skills and capabilities to be able to do kind of serious kind of work. Um, at the high school level in the US, there's still that flexibility that if you have um, a, a school that is really has, has kind of put that work into um, partnering with local organisations, then they can do some amazing things. Um, but in most countries at that kind of age stage is when you're really heading into um, a very sort of centrally specified curriculum that is very closely tied to qualifications. Um, so so I think that's why we saw it's really in the US to an extent in Canada and North America that um, that those, those kind of fuller, richer examples of what this can look like were coming through.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that partly just because it's hard to to assess something that's cross-disciplinary or harder to assess than it is if you've just got an individual test in science, technology, art, English, math or no, sorry, engineering, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think it's really linked to the kind of assessment one is trying to do and what purposes it's being put towards. So if we're talking about assessment for the purposes of a centralized qualification that is perhaps also being used in like high stakes selection decisions, then the requirements there for a certain sort of reliability for fairness means you'll push much more towards things that are um, uh, kind of carried out in very standardized conditions where people are responding to similar sorts of questions. And then that takes you down the road of things end up being a bit more formulaic, a bit more predictable, and it becomes very difficult to do anything that is kind of Locally integrated, or or where there's more student choice involved, um, particularly if you, you want those assessments to be able to be carried out at any kind of cost, you know, low cost way that the government's usually looking for. So, so I think we we do have this real tension between um, the kind of learning that can be um, really applied and really locally integrated, and the kind of learning that can be um, reliably assessed at scale.
1: Yeah, yeah. And here we're leaking into, I told you there was so many things that I wanted to talk to you about, because you've also done quite a bit of work with uh, Rethinking Assessment, haven't you, um, which um, has come up. And I, um, I don't know if this might be a good time to just briefly mention some of the work you've been doing with them, because that definitely links to what you were just talking about.
0: Yeah, sure. No, this is exactly the kind of knot we're trying to crack a little bit in, in Rethinking Assessment. I mean, there's there's a number of sort of motivations for that. For that group, for that movement, um, but one of the yeah, one of the main things that's really brought me in is trying to think about how can we strike a better balance between the needs of you know assessment for the purposes of um, where you need that those kind of really granular outputs for the purposes of selection or whatever, and um, assessment not standing in the way of some of the the other kinds of learning we, we'd want to see in schools. Um, so, rethinking assessment is is kind of at the stage of developing some, um, some 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 prototypes and things that um, want to be trialed over the, the next year or so, uh, but sort of trialed in a way where they can be developed. Uh, you know, we know when you bring in a new assessment system, it's not a case of just sort of dropping it in and it gets going. Like there's a lot of uh, changes that potentially have to happen around the way things are being taught, around what's being taught, um, how timetabling is going to work, how marking is going to work. Um, so that's all the kind of stuff that the that the great schools that have have stepped forward to to kind of be part of some of these um, prototyping phase are, are going to be trying to kind of figure out as they as they develop things.
1: Mm. Yeah. Just while we're on this, can we can we just uh, explore? So you wrote a blog quite recently that was called "Moving Beyond Grades" will be the key to rethinking assessment. Um, which I just found so interesting, and it's obviously so like it's like it's almost like inseparable when people think of assessment, they think of grades. It's hard for people to even think beyond that. Can you just sort of give a little explanation as to what your argument was in that blog
0: yeah sure so so this is the thinking that um we we often well we talk particularly in rethinking assessment about rethinking the sort of assessment process. But I think we also have to really talk about the reporting process, which is kind of what actually ends up on the on the transcript or the whatever it is, the kind of report card um, that that indicates the results of that assessment. Because there's quite a big difference between um, something that just has to result in a judgment of, say, you know, have you passed or can it res- result in a judgment that's like a bit of a, a narrative about the quality of work? Can it result in a judgment that is, you know, something out of 100 Um, or, or, you know, does it it result in a a grade or or, or in a number out of 10 or something? So um, there's a it really changes what you can do in the assessment process or what you have to do um, based depending on kind of what you're going to have to report. Um, We're experiencing this at the moment just in the, the work I'm starting to do for LIS around um the the assessment practices you know all of we have all these kind of assessment practices that have been worked out that we're going to be using um and they're all uh the first sort of design principle that we just have to accept is the fact that we've got to be able to give a percentage score for a module because the way the UK higher education system is constructed at least in England is that um you have to be able to at the end give everybody um, either a first or a two one, and that's all dependent on you know whether they're getting sixty nine point five or, or seventy point five. Yeah. Um, and so that that's kind of like a really quite constraining uh, design factor on then what you can do in assessment processes. And likewise at GCSE or A level, you know, at the moment we're required to, in all subjects, ultimately result in the same kind of grades. But the kind of assessment one might want to do in in something like maths might be very different from the kind of assessment one might want to do in art or the kind of assessment one might want to do of an interdisciplinary locally integrated project. <laughs> so, so I think kind of thinking a bit more creatively about reporting and perhaps breaking that idea that all domains need to be reported on in a comparable way I think is, is really important to also sort of breaking that fallacy that ultimately everything needs to kind of aggregate to one overall score i think if we could move away from the idea that like your your performance in one subject is in any way comparable to your performance in a in a totally different domain it would really help us sort of break that break down that idea that these things are all ultimately comparable
1: yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a really interesting piece. It's quite a short read. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it really made me think. And it's like, it's, the, the thing about rethinking assessment is that it can get very technical, can't it? Like, like it's quite complicated, like the statistical analyses and people sometimes like, oversimplify the debate and they say it's either criterion based and therefore it's good, like sort of piano grades and, and driving tests are, or it's like enforced failure for some and it's normative assessment and that's bad. And th- there's sort of a grain of truth in that, but actually the reality of it is a lot more complicated than that. And there's, a, you know, people talk about the the mutant algorithm last year, but well, there's always an algorithm at play, isn't there? There's always like some statistical machinations going on behind the scenes. It's always like a very complicated technical picture.
0: Yeah, it, it is. And I think it's also always a a kind of, what, philosophical or political depending on how you want to look at it picture you know it always involves value judgments about um how we're going to construct standards what kind of standards we're going to construct um so you know the use of of algorithms of something like statistical moderation is from the perspective of fairness something that we we need to do to sort of uh have some element of consistency year on year but even that notion of, like, consistency year on year, you know, it involves certain value judgments about what we're really trying to do with these assessments. Are we trying to sort of carve up a cohort of young people into the same sort of shares of numbers each year um, or not? And, and so I think, yeah, it's really, really important that we acknowledge the full technical complexity of it, but also the all of the value judgments that are going in
1: absolutely and it is fundamentally it's a a heck of a problem it's fundamentally a moral question isn't it you know when you when you when you're talking to some of the young people i've been talking with young people recently we're starting to bring them in alongside this podcast we've started to do these campfire conversations i'd I'd love it if you could join us for for one sometime soon um and we've been listening to the to the experiences of young people some of whom have, have been in mainstream all throughout their career and they've done very well and going off to top universities some of whom have been homeschooled their whole life, some of whom have sort of tried mainstream and just really didn't get along with it and sort of left afterwards. And the, and what's interesting is that although there's a diverse range of experiences of school, there was quite a universal sense that, that school is bad for young people, you know, that, and, and in particular when it comes to assessments, um, and the way that that young people are sort of railroaded through assessments that they don't really have any choice over doing or when they do them or what subjects they're doing them in there's this minimal you know sense that you can choose certain options from a very limited menu in year 9 in this country um, but some of the metaphors that some of them used were so powerful like there was one there was one boy who was talking about um about like so at the, his school, the high school in the Dominican Republic, they've been making wheels that week, where you just get a big, big strip of metal and you just bash it with a hammer and move it along, and then you know it turns into a wheel. And obviously, he'd been reflecting on this, and he in he said that being at school is like being a piece of metal just being repeatedly hammered by stuff. You know, and he'd obviously sort of been been mulling this over. And another another uh, young person in that call said that uh, that if he equated the classroom to being like a um a recycling bin, and that if you don't fit the mode if you don't learn in the way that that the teacher wants you to learn for this particular moment in time that you're tossed in the in the in the trash and left to rot it was such a heartbreaking it's almost like just nearly lost it listening to that, and it was like if i mean if we 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 work in the system where we've got all of these teachers who are generally lovely and who, who want to you know want the best for every single young person in their care and obviously that's central to this idea that we're talking about here about you know how to build a thriving society you have to have every individual within that who is thriving and it seems like the constraints of the of the the system it's so sort of rigid and inflexible and especially the assessment system that with the best will in the world of the teachers who work within that system some of the young people come out at the other end of it feeling like that you know and that's not a recipe for a thriving society is it
0: no but i mean i think what makes this really really difficult is that it's the sort of flip side of well like much more choice or um you know much more variety does have its own problems so you know we know that the kind of centralized um aspects of schooling Um, and this particularly being studied in in relation to kind of centralized exams can have an equalizing effect. So in the existing studies which are mostly in OECD countries using kind of PISA results um, countries without some kind of centralized exam at that um, secondary stage do tend to have more of a relationship between educational outcomes and social background. So there is this kind of equalizing effect of sort of forcing everybody to study the same things, because we know that otherwise, sometimes giving too much kind of choice and flexibility to students could tend towards just their the sort of prior inequalities coming out in terms of what people are studying. This is where, as I say, everything's everything's a kind of philosophical question all the way down, because then it's a question of, well, do we want to say, okay, there's this body of knowledge that we we're saying is highly valued, and everyone has to learn it, even if You know, they don't really want to um, in order to kind of reduce the inequalities between people. Or do we want to say, well, actually, that idea of there being sort of one valued body of knowledge is itself just sort of creating an inequality where one doesn't need to necessarily exist. And if we were just to sort of value a more plural set of, you know, a more plural vision of, of society, a more diverse range of knowledge, you know, we wouldn't necessarily see where those inequalities are. And I think that is where we have to make really careful distinctions between kind of what are the capabilities that people need, you know, just to be able to, to, to thrive, to flourish, um, whether that's in terms of like, you know, comprehension of lots of different kinds of symbol systems. So reading maths, um, languages, different kinds of things like that. Um, and then And then it's kind of more open to people's choice, what other kinds of knowledge they engage with. Um, But it it does get very difficult to draw those lines about where should choice begin or more choice begin. Um, You know, I I think I think in England at the moment, we could we could move the line a bit more towards allowing young people more choices so that they can um, explore a greater diversity of knowledge so that they have a bit more opportunity to to kind of develop identities around particular domains of knowledge rather than feeling like they're all having to study the same thing. Um, but but I wouldn't want us to necessarily go all, go all the way in the other direction of just like letting go of that common commonality. Yeah, I mean,
1: I don't think that it's necessarily a binary switch. I mean, I'd love to I'd love to see more about that research. So you so you're saying you saying that that there's been research to suggest that there are countries where they don't have standardized exams at the end of at the end of secondary school. And in those countries, there's greater inequality than in than in countries that do have standardised exams.
0: Yeah. So on on average, yeah, this is like looking across, controlling for various other differences.
1: Right. But, I mean, it's obviously. I mean, this is hugely like difficult area to look at, isn't it? Because there's causality and correlation and so on. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, for example, like the UK is one of the most unequal countries in the developed world, and we have uh you know, standardised testing. So, I mean, I, I'd be really interested to look at that. But I'd also be interested to look at what's, yeah, what's happening in those countries that don't have it, what's happening instead. And actually, if it is just a free-for-all and it's literally just like there is no assessment and lots of kids are just voting with their feet and not even going to school, then you can see how that's going to replicate inequality. But we also, you know, know quite a lot about the ways in which schools replicate social and economic inequality. Yeah. And so...
0: And and that's exactly the challenge. So just because the ones so some of the classic examples would be in in North America, um, in the likes of the US and Canada, where there's a there's a there's a kind of curriculum to some extent, but it's set at a much more local level. Um, and so some students are opting in to taking some kind of more standardized um, tests and exams at the high school level but they're not necessarily having to, depending on the state. And so you can end up with um, uh, just the the kind of options that people are, are studying past the age of 14, um, looking very, very different and, and tending to be correlated to their social background. So those who are taking what would be perceived as more kind of uh, high level courses um tend to be you know coming from backgrounds where their parents were more highly educated all of this falls out kind of a, a, as we would expect as we know tends to happen but that's where that's where they have the argument coming in for look if we had something that was sort of fully fully centralized fully standardized the same expectations for everybody then that's a way of kind of lifting people um not that it actually tends to work out like that all kinds of other problems about funding and things like that come in that are still maintaining those inequalities but that's that's where part of the argument for centralisation comes from.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see. I mean, it seems to me that it's a classic tight but loose problem where you could say, like, yes, it's like there's a requirement that that like all young people should be, or maybe not even a requirement. I don't know. I don't know about requirement. One of the early episodes with Ian Cunningham, um, I don't know if you know him, really interesting guy, very much outside of the mainstream debate. He's a de-schooler, like unreconstructed de-schooler. He's been doing this stuff since the 1970s. Um, and he runs a a place that I used to work at in Brighton called SMLC, the Self-Managed Learning College, where the kids can literally do what they want, um, when they want, for how long, and so on. And most of them do do assessments, um, but there's no obligation for them to do it, and some of them choose not to. And Ian's take on it is that it's unethical to to force a, to force a young person to sit an assessment against their will and to grade them against their will and to give them that, that un un unasked for feedback is can, can be deeply damaging and is you know is of questionable value and if you look at the extreme you know if you look at an extreme case of a young person who say is for whatever's going on in their life their head is not in the game they're not doing well in say maths and you know that they're going to fail and and again, you know, people sometimes say, well, it, it, like math exams aren't compulsory now, like, they are optional, but they're certainly not presented as optional, are they, in schools, they don't say, oh, there's a test, there's a test tomorrow, kids, you don't have to do it if you don't want, you can just bring in a book, like, schools don't say that, like, to all intents and purposes, they are compulsory, and, you know, requiring a young person like that to sit a test that you know pretty well they're going to fail, um, is, you know, it's hard to see an upside.
0: Yeah no I I have a lot of a lot of time for argument I think there is um yeah there is a lot of ways that, that that what we do currently is is pretty unethical I think where it gets tricky is if one says we shouldn't have any of these systems of kind of uh, assessment at all in terms of like that would result in a sort of formal grading of people because then um, potentially in the counterfactual what people would then be using to make judgments is a lot of their sort of default biases social forms of discrimination and so then what is the opportunity for somebody who is from say like a, a lower income background who would have all kinds of social markers where they might be most at risk of being perceived as as sort of incapable how would they demonstrate that they are in fact capable mm. So either we have to just become like way more enlightened and curious as a society in which we would sort of assume everybody has tons of capabilities unless proved otherwise, which, you know, would be a nice direction to go in if we could. Um, or we have to have some way that people can kind of prove their their competence.
1: Yeah, I I don't think that you would have to get rid of it altogether. But we've we've definitely fallen into a rethinking assessment Sorry. hole here. No, 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 it's good. It's entirely of my of my making, and we're going to need longer than a three hour podcast to get to the bottom of all this stuff. Um, but let's plow on. So so this, the thing that I always come back to, and I think that you probably know a lot more about about the technicalities of assessments and so on than I do. But it seems to me that a fairly straightforward way forward that would that would be only good as far as I can see I don't know maybe that's too strong a claim is to is to use the like the music grade style system right so so like in maths you you would have a grade one paper and you and so music music grades are optional you can do them or you can choose not to and you can you know I can play the piano pretty well but I can also choose not you know I've never done Assessments in 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 PR, right? So so whether or not it's optional or not, but you could say, okay, you're you're at the level one stage, right? And you're going to sit your grade one math paper, and then when you get that, that's an achievement, right? And it's like, well done, you got your grade one, and then maybe you'll move on to your grade two, and maybe you'll get to grade three or four, and you'll think, actually, do you know what? I can't get past this grade five stuff. I'm okay with that. I'm just going to leave it at grade four. And I'm going to focus on some other stuff. And and you could argue that there would be some sort of core, you know, functional maths requirement. But beyond that, you know, uh, you can sort of choose where you want to go with it. And most people make those decisions, don't they? As they go through life, you know, they, they, they become really, really good at surfing or they try it once or twice and they think, yeah, that's not for me. Or likewise with different sports or likewise with different hobbies or just like all of life, right? Like we, we make decisions about when we want to pursue things and when we don't. And it just seems to me that it would be quite a straightforward thing to, to, to have music grade style assessments for all subjects where you could have kids sort of choosing what level to do next and, and that would be a combined com- a co- combined conversation between them and their parents and carers and between the school. So it's not like you're just leaving it up to chance. There's an informed decision, but it's that tight but loose thing where it's like... The type thing is you're in school and there are assessments to do, and it's a good idea to do assessments and it's a good idea to to demonstrate your your you know your capabilities to the world, but you know the level at which you do that and the extent to which you do it and which subjects you were particularly interested in at this point in time, it seems to me that we could create a whole lot more flexibility there without getting rid of the whole idea of assessment altogether
0: yeah i I think there is huge potential in that, and I think the only the addition i would make is just to say how how should we think about the part of it that might look a bit more like like the driving test where it's sort of okay there this is like a qualification that you need to do a lot of the things that people want to do in society um so i think i think you know yes a large part of it could be choice based but i would i think part of it would probably need to be more of a sense of like this is something. There's a sort of expectation that you will develop yourself in this way in order to be like a responsible member of society. Like we think, if you went driving on the road without your driving license, you're being a kind of irresponsible member of society. And likewise, I think you know if you engage in in voting and whatever it is without having developed um, a certain sort of you know level of capability. Obviously, I'm not saying we should stop people voting if they don't <laughs> have it. It's more just like more just like there would be an expectation that sort of this is something that you should do in school. Um, and I th- I think where we could be looking is a lot more at what's happening in the more kind of competency based systems, the systems that have tried to embrace the sort of, um, uh, you know, competency based, mastery based. So the sort of being tested and, and then you kind of move on when you're ready. And be looking at well, what's happening there in terms of the choices people are making, the rates at which people are are developing, um, and what kind of inequalities are appearing, um, and, and then be thinking about okay, how do we how do we rejig these systems to try and minimise those inequalities while still sort of maximising the opportunity for for choice.
1: Yeah, there's there's such a lot of of um, of promise i think in the work that this rethinking assessment group is doing and it's such an important and smart place to focus your attention i think because you know what is what is measured what what's the phrase we treasure what we measure <laughs> and if we can change what we what we um are measuring then we can change what we're treasuring <laughs> um it just seems like a very a very urgent piece of work there's one thing just while we're here if i may there's one thing that I'm curious about. I read this report by Ofqual a while ago, and it said something like that, that, that they really tried to create criterion-based assessments for subjects in the, in the I think it was in the 80s. Mm. And they just found that it was technically too difficult to do. And that's why we're left with this primarily sort of normative assessment system that we've got. I don't really, I've never been able to find out what those problems were or just how like technically, it doesn't seem to me that it would be hard to write a grade one, grade four, grade seven paper for maths or for science, you know, if you just break up the paper from like, you know, those, the, the easy questions that you get at the start of a paper, the one pointers. there's your grade one paper, <laughs> you know, yeah. at that sort of level. And then you've got your six point answers for like, you know, grade nine.
0: So stop, stop me if we get too far into the weeds and this gets boring, but um, yeah. So what? why this is difficult is if we think about like what what makes a question difficult. It's a it's really difficult to say. Like it. so if you've got to have papers which um, each time they're sat sort of have the same level of difficulty, like precisely the same level of difficulty for people who've studied the same curriculum, but they've also got to have sufficiently different questions each time that they're not kind of overly predictable, then you've got to work out, okay, what are things which are sort of exactly equivalently difficult, but also different. Mm. And, and that's only, you know, we, we can kind of work out that sort of stuff by by testing things and item response theory, which is the main like psychometric, psychometric approach used in the US is all about this sort of items as in questions being developed. And then they sort of work out the difficulty of that particular question and then they can sort of work out how that should be weighted in, in in a paper as a whole. But we we don't really use that approach in the UK, and, it, and it's a very different sort of underlying set of assumptions. We could we could use it, um, and that would potentially be one direction to go in. But you still it still has built into it um, some of the same assumptions about kind of how you want a group to perform, and the assumption that you should sort of have ultimately a normal distribution of performance so some people doing very well and some people not doing very well trying to move completely away from that so they did this in new zealand in the late 90s and early 2000s when they first brought in their national certificate and they found that just year on year there were such big fluctuations in how many were were passing or getting merits and um, and excellences as they called them in the different subjects that from sort of parents and and employers there was just an outcry of like what is this new certificate like it just seems to be totally unreliable and so they then had to bring in a bit more statistical moderation to kind of maintain a bit more consistency year on year so i think it is it yeah i i don't think we can do away with some sort of um adjustment to be trying to maintain a sense of consistency if our goal is to is to report in terms of sort of Passes or, or grades. I think the way we move away from it is if we move to something more like kind of narrative evaluations of of quality or um, fuzzier sort of representations of quality. So that would be relying more on like graphical representations of of how someone has performed, which don't say okay, you've got to have a clear cut point between like what's an A and what's a B. So you can capture a bit more of that kind of blurriness fuzziness that exists in like real judgments and evaluation
1: yeah yeah That's,
0: uh, another tangent so maybe we'll read no that.
1: no it's good i'm definitely okay i'm throwing us a, a, a rope ladder now to get back out of the of the rethinking assessment hole thank you for that it is it is fascinating like you say it's this really multi-layered knotty problem uh, right let's get back to thrive um, so the next layer down, we've talked about uh, thriving at a global level and at a societal level. Let's move to the interpersonal level. So Pathfinders for Thriving Relationships. I don't know if you can remember any of the of the examples of schools that have been doing some really innovative work in helping young people how to get along with one another a little better. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. So I think, I mean, um, one of the bits of this that really interested me particularly when we were first work, working on it was around sex and relationships education um because i think it's something that's just so so like fundamental to people's lives and it sort of is part of school it's accepted that we should have some of this as part of school but i think um the the perhaps most difficult parts of it are still you know not not really there and not really represented and because it is so um culturally and kind of personally charged um, I think it's something that that is very, very difficult to do. So we looked at an example of um, something that's a kind of sex and ethics curriculum that was developed by um, mainly a sort of philosopher in, in the U.S. and was really using bits from philosophy and bits from literature to say, look, how could we really um, teach about the, the ethics of sex and relationships um, in the sort of, um, you know, concentrated Uh, advanced way that we would want to teach other complex things in school and particularly at a sort of high school level. And I think that is an example of a key sort of switch we need to make when we think about some of these parts of thriving. It's not about this stuff being the sort of fun stuff that happens around the edges. I mean, some of it hopefully is fun, but it's also really difficult. And so we should sort of treat it with the same kind of respect as we treat other parts of you know what we hope people learn at school and see it as something that could be really core to sort of academic learning um so yeah that was that was one of the examples from that chapter i was most excited about
1: yeah thank you and that's really good to hear i I used to be a a pshe coordinator and Mm -hmm. i was really keen like and one of the problems with is that pshe is sometimes it's not even taught Like, doesn't have an hour a week even on the on the timetable they do it through drop down days And often when it is taught, when I took over PSHE at my school, it was taught by like 35 different form tutors. And some of those were really into it and are really good. But for many teachers you know, it's absolutely out of their comfort zone teaching sex and relationships education. And you need to have quite a lot of specialist knowledge and understanding about new forms of contraception and where, where people can access, you know, confidential advice and guidance and so on. And you really need to have specialist trained teams of people teaching that stuff. And it's often not given the not given the status. I know it, it actually recently became a statutory requirement finally, after years and years of it almost being and then it wasn't, and then it almost was and wasn't. It finally has been given that status. But even now I'm talking to schools that aren't teaching it still. So I don't know what difference this statutory MIP status has really made. Um but yeah, thank you. And I, I really, I really appreciate that um, you know, it's not something that people often talk about um as something that we really need to improve upon but my goodness you know the recent the recent cases of you know the, what was that website called where lots of young people it was kind of like a me too type yeah, thing where they were talking like about it. the abuse yeah. that they've received at the hands of other students um who have clearly you know not been well educated enough in um affairs of sexual relations
0: yeah no i mean it it, it does make for for grim reading but it's also I don't know, in some ways, it's kind of not surprising. It's like, if, you know, if you look at adult society as well, it's like really people are treating each other awfully all over the place. Yeah. And, um, but I think, I think a lot of it, you know, it's not just about sort of saying well, we shouldn't do that. It's really kind of digging into like, why does that sort of stuff happen? And, you know, <laughs> thinking of interdisciplinarity, like all subjects I think can be related to this issue. Um, And it, it, I think it, it, yeah, it's just ripe for opportunities for really deep teaching. Mm.
1: Yeah, thank you. I used to really love teaching teaching that stuff. Um, but I know it's not it's not to everybody's taste for sure. So there's there's loads of good stuff in that chat. So you talk a lot about empathy and the importance of teaching, listening and just teaching for, you know, young people how to sort of to make ties for relationships and like often, you know, friendship issues in schools are are sometimes seen as just like an annoyance, aren't they? Like this, like this, kids who've had sort of, like a falling out with a previous best friend, and they like at, at that time the focus is for, from the school's perspective is like this is an inconvenience. It's like how we need to just get this kid back into lessons and learning. But for that kid, like that's the the most important thing is like how can i feel okay like when i've just been betrayed publicly by my best friend in the lunch queue and everyone laughed sort of thing like that's like really really serious stuff that again you know there's not really the time and space in the mainstream curriculum to respond to those things that while they may not be you know there's not a gcse in friendship it's like one of the most important things that a young person can learn is like how to how to build and maintain thriving social life
0: yeah and and again it's it's sort of one can go really really deep into some of these things you know both academically and in terms of also how we learn to sort of understand what's going on with ourselves and our bodies and what we're thinking about and i think sort of overcoming those like deep emotional painful moments um can be they're huge learning experiences already but they could be used as ways to tap into also really important kind of theoretical learning that we might want people to master
1: yeah 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 absolutely um and and it sort of leads quite nicely i think into the final level um the the idea of the intrapersonal um and there's this chapter on pathfinders for a thriving self and you talk about things like you know spending time in nature being being okay with silence uh new types of physical education and so on um, and again, comes back to that question of promoting purpose and just like thinking about what your what your own purpose is, where you fit as a person within this. Uh, again, I'm going to ask you know, are there any sort of memories from from as you were researching the book that you think, oh, this this is a really nice idea as to how how to how to engage and harness the sort of the the, the self actualization of young people, like drawing them from the inside out rather than sort of cramming a lot of stuff in from the outside in.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, I think there's one of the schools that's in that chapter is one that really does try to put kind of young people's individual sense of like figuring out their purpose at the centre of what it's about. Um, it, it has the flexibility as a school to to design of what a lot of what they're doing as a curriculum um around sort of extended projects that the, that the young people are are choosing and then also around extended projects that the that the faculty that the teachers are kind of proposing and that students opt into. And so um, it's this sort of great back and forth between um, the the students kind of figuring out what they're really interested in, but then also sort of seeing how their teachers are people who are really fascinated by something and kind of having these examples of what it looks like at an adult level. to to sort of be really fascinated by something and get really deeply into something. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, that's a lot of what in the transition from like school to post school, whatever comes next. I think if people can leave with a sense of like something they really care about, that they feel they know more about than most people that they feel they have a kind of special relationship to almost as a thing, um, is, is sort of unbelievably powerful there's a fair amount of, of research on, on that kind of stuff whether it's framed as vocation or passions or purpose or whatever it is like it really does have benefits in a lot of measurable ways but i think yeah immeasurable ones as well
1: yeah 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 and and so and so and linked i think intrinsically to this idea of a thriving self is the idea of agency uh, and you have a whole separate chapter on that um and in particular like so there was a bit that just really struck me so there's just a section on like what is agency uh that this is the OECD's definition of it where they wrote um that it is about acting rather than to be acted upon shaping rather than to be shaped and choosing rather than to accept choices decided by others it assumes the possession of a sound self concept and the ability to translate in a responsible way needs and wants into acts of will, decision, choice, and action. It's good good bit of definition that, isn't it? They've <laughs> really thought about that. Um I mean, my goodness, I mean that that's that's probably the one thing when you talk to young people about their experience of school, it's the one thing that comes up again and again that they just don't get to do that they don't get to act everything is done to them it just doesn't feel like they're able to translate their their needs and wants and desires into acts of will Um, and there's there's almost like an assumption in one of the last conversations i had on saturday with these young people they were saying that there's an assumption that you know that if we leave them to their own devices and to exercise their agency that they'll make bad choices because young people don't know what they don't know or they'll just go on youtube and look at cat videos and they were talking about wanting to study you know, geopolitics of the Middle East. They're wanting to study, you know, like climate change. They're wanting to study, you know, critical race theory and like anti-racism and Black Lives Matters. and these these big, important ideas that are doing the rounds at the moment. And they're, they're finding that their voice and their choices just aren't listened to or respected. Um, and it's such a massive thing, this. And again, it sort of comes back to assessment, doesn't it? Because you, you just mentioned in the last thing that you said, like there are some things that are unassessable but that doesn't mean that they're lacking in value. In fact, I think that you could argue that some of the most worthwhile things that that we can do are unassessable. Um, So so let's talk about agency briefly. Why is it that you wanted to make this, like to give it a whole chapter
0: of its own? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think you put a lot of it there. This sort of is what a lot of the debate comes down to, I guess, about the purpose of education is, are we trying to prepare people to sort of all turn out one way or be able to do one set of things, or are we trying to ultimately get them to sort of be themselves in a sort of fuller way? And, and if we want them to be themselves in a fuller way, I think agency is kind of how we, how we express that. And again, as I was saying before, this isn't about, well, in fact, you said it's it's not a binary switch from sort of a world of everything being constrained to full choice. It's more just how do we move the, the dial a little bit more towards more opportunity for people to to develop that sense of actually how do you how do you make your own choices how do you develop your own interests um how do you figure out what really what really interests you what happens when you really try and do something you know for yourself or, or with a group of other people and and if school isn't the place to kind of try out some of that then then where where is um so so yeah that chapter was sort of just really trying to into some of the detail of 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 what does this mean and what that look like
1: yeah yeah i mean and there are lots of ways in which we can introduce agency even in small ways you know even within the constraints of the current system we used to for example let the kids set their own homework you know like they can they can or, or to sort of to give them their homework at the start of of a half term and say that you've got six weeks to do this you can either like do it all now, and then you just like, you know, you can take it off or you can leave it all to the last minute or you can, you know, spread it evenly across. And it almost doesn't really matter which of those things that they do because from each of them, they'll sort of, they'll learn something about themselves and about the organisation of time and resources and, and so on and how to prioritise things. And so it doesn't take much to introduce a little bit of agency into what we're doing, um, into how young people present their work, into into whether they present their work. Um, and one of the things that we used to do is to to give them a lot of license. And this links to the to the to the level above about interpersonal We would give them lots of license over who they work with mm. within within the class, which, again, is sometimes seen as just an absolute no, no, because we assume that they'll make bad choices and they'll just goof off with their friends. But that was not our experience, you know. They 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 mix up, they they really liked the fact that first of all, we sort of engineered it so that they all had to mix with one another regularly. Because kids often become very siloed. They just want to stay with in their safe group in the with the kids that they know. Don't necessarily even like, but they just they, they know them. And so with the, with the, with the familiarity comes a sense of sort of semi-safety. But we used to systematically require them to 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 get out of the that apparent comfort of their friendship groups and to mix with one another. And they really liked that. And through that work, they then became much more aware of the strengths and you know of different kids within the class. And they would say, Oh no, I really want to work with that kid in this project. Because yes, you know, he's maybe quite talkative and maybe sometimes a bit disruptive, but he's a really good salesperson, right? And we need somebody to be able to sell this idea. And so we're gonna get him on board. So they really sometimes sort of to know one another in that way
0: and i think exactly what you've described there is is the balance that can be replicated you know not just for how one chooses what to who to work with but also like what to work on what to learn about um even things like maybe when to be assessed that balance of okay giving people exposure to something experience you as the sort of informed adults making some decisions about what would be a good idea um, to sort of avoid the bad outcome of everybody just sticking with who they know already, but then allowing for a lot more choice after that. And I think, it, yeah, it's exactly that kind of balance that we could design in a lot more, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so there's there's one more thing I'd like to ask you about from the book. And then I think we might come back to it at the end because the book ends with a chapter on, uh, it's called The Challenge of, of Scale, Beyond Beautiful Exceptions, looking at these Pathfinder schools and thinking this is all well and good, but actually, you know, this is not happening at scale yet. And so, but that's a, that's a massive question. I think it might make sense to come back to that later. But before that, there's a chapter on, it's called From Schools to Learning Ecosystems. And that's something that I hadn't really come across before or thought about. Can you just sort of give a little succinct summary of what you mean by a learning ecosystem and how that's different to a school?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and this is the part that really draws the most on on Valerie's previous work. Valerie's been talking about this for for a long time. Um, and and partly it's this idea of the shift from connecting with from sort of you know being a school to connecting with all of the learning opportunities that exist within a community and so that's manifested in different ways at different times you know there have been community schools which can sometimes be a little bit one version of this the sort of idea of schools as like learning hubs or learning villages there's um and uh, so in in some some separate work that valerie's done looking at different examples of learning ecosystems and different ways they can develop um, we see them sometimes, uh, sometimes forming around schools. Sometimes more forming around, say, um, uh, state institutions or non-profit institutions um, that exist within a within a community. So, like a, a science museum, sort of being a real hub that's trying to kind of connect to other places. In Philadelphia, sorry, in Pittsburgh, <laughs> in Pittsburgh, US, there's a really flourishing example, Remake Learning, which is a sort of networked collection of different institutions and organizations that are supporting out of school learning opportunities for young people and I think when we think about all of the many different parts of thriving and also just the massive diversity of different kinds of learning we might want to do in our lives um I don't think we can expect all of that to happen in school and so um but at the same time, we know that there are big inequalities in in who gets ac- who gets access to that other kind of learning. So the idea about you know how can schools help forge those connections and sort of just get people out there more and engaging in more of those things um, is something that, with perhaps you know, the right sort of surrounding system structures and accountability, um, there there could be more time and opportunity for schools to focus on those sort of things.
1: Yeah, yeah, they definitely sometimes operate as though they're sort of disconnected from the outside world. I've definitely worked in schools like that, and when you look at the resources that are around, um, just like so, I live in Brighton, and you know, like there, there's so many amazing resources. There's the beach, there's the sea, there are really good parks, there's a velodrome, the basketball courts, like the, the the stuff that's just available for free in the parks just around the city is like better than they've got in the most expensive fee-paying school here you know like, there's incredible facilities and resources um and I know that so in the in the book you mentioned I know that no no conversation about rethinking education would be would be complete without mentioning Finland at some point um <laughs> and in finland they they see they see this idea of learning ecosystems and they you know you talk about Helsinki about how you know like even in kindergartens children go outside the classrooms and go get out into museums theaters libraries in the streets everywhere in the city um it seems like this is something that we could do more of: getting kids outside of classrooms and seeing school as something that is much more uh, integrated with the wider world.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned Finland, like I think I think it is sometimes interesting to think about why does that example always come up? And partly it's just because they've got very good at talking about what they're doing. You know, they've sort of really turned their educational reputation into a form of like. Um, you know national industry basically but it's also that they have just so fully embraced this idea of education as something very holistic um and that they're kind of just really not afraid to say look we have these different set of goals for what school is about and it's interestingly connected i think to just like a real valuing of like childhood there and sort of you can go into a bookshop and there's like whole sections just about sort of childhood in a way that I think we wouldn't really have here you know we, we sometimes have them about education but not necessarily just about that idea that like what do we need to do as a society to kind of help help children thrive um and so so I I think that shift to learning ecosystems does take a really intentional bit of saying okay we're going to not expect so much of schools in some accounts in order to allow them to spend more time um doing these kind of things you know helping people live like richer lives in a variety of ways not just sort of in a in a couple of quite narrow ways and that's that's a trade-off that's a value judgment but um that's that's the judgment we're making
1: yeah 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 thank you i mean it's a wonderful book i thoroughly thoroughly recommend that that uh anybody who hasn't read it yet uh goes out and grabs a copy and there's it it ends really nicely there's two people whose names just pop up with alarming uh frequency (laughs) i've yet to meet but um I, i would i want to get them on the podcast at some point andy moore and and ray snape um who i've been in touch with very briefly recently um both of them but um yeah, and Andy was saying that this 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 is his favorite book. Did he say that? He says this is, um, yeah, this has been really really helpful in in shaping his thinking. The most important book I've ever read, he said, <laughs> which is a, a ringing endorsement <laughs> if, the, ever, if ever there ring. was one. But I yeah. really think that it is because it's like it's like the most robust case for change. I think that I've come across, um, and it's important that you have a robust case because you know, and that's fundamentally my. My sort of concern with with this this wave of neo traditionalism that's been happening is that like it's essentially a conservative, you know, statement, isn't it? It's like let's no, let's not change everything. Let's keep things as they are. Let's keep subject disciplines. Let's keep the GCSE. Let's keep things as they are. And I just think, like, have you seen the news? (laughs) Like, you know, things aren't going too well. Yeah. Um, And there's lots and lots of unnecessary suffering happening all over the place. And there's corruption and there's preventable disease and greed and just endemic, you know, problems. And, you know, it seems like education is the end of the thread that we should tug at. And we sort of have to have a progressive conversation here. Like, conserving the status quo isn't going to cut it.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it comes from a really it comes from a really good place that the, the you know, traditionalism or, or whatever one wants to call it. Like it comes from the sense that kids lives are really important and we shouldn't sort of experiment with them. We shouldn't do anything too risky. And what we have is decent. And so let's let's stick with it. And I can really understand that impulse. Um, but I think it's just ex- exactly as you say, if we, if we really look at what's going on, don't we kind of have to think like we could we could do better (laughs) we could do very differently yeah yeah
1: we really do and you you mentioned um Yuval Noah Harari a few times in the book and uh if anyone's not persuaded of the case for you know radically rethinking how we're doing things if you read his latest one the 21 lessons for the 21st century um it's you know it's very clear that we are you know in this I know that I mean Everyone always says it, don't they? You know, there's all these quotes from like people from hundreds of years ago saying, Oh, the world's poised on a precipice. <laughs> but it really is. I mean, it really it really is, isn't it? Like, you know, 20 years ago there was no internet, you know, and like that that's not an inconsequential change. That's absolutely vast. And, you know, the nuclear threat hasn't gone away, and climate change is very clear and real, and the, the total devastating crash in biodiversity. Like these things are not just like you know hot air. It's not just some sort of like doom mongers who have sort of grabbed hold of the world's attention and are you know fanning the flames unnecessarily. It really does feel like this is the moment for radical a rethink and a reboot of how we educate our young people um because you know there's no shortage of of very serious, if not existential threats that we face um like the you know the 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 stakes are high
0: yeah, yeah. No, Sorry, I, that I, wasn't really I, a question <laughs> no no no. i mean it's, yeah i can i can only agree i, I think the last thing i say on, on the book is just that it's also a bid for people to sort of keep their eye on the on the why like i think there's always a risk that we sort of use these arguments about oh big change to sort of do anything that we would want to do differently and i think it's an argument for sort of trying to be somewhat reason still about like well why what are the things that we really most want to change and so it's not just about kind of you know changing some pedagogies here and there but also really thinking about like yeah w- what are we focusing on in the curriculum what are the kind of experiences that we're prioritizing um and and, and having a kind of reason way of thinking through all of that mm
1: yeah thank you so so before we move on i'd like to i'd like to talk to play the devil's advocate for a moment on a couple of points if i may so so as we were just talking about traditionalism, I have like a a trad who lives in my head <laughs> not not a particular person I think it's an amalgam of like a number of of prominent trads who've sort of had some made, had some weird hybridised offspring who who sprouts up in the back of my mind from time to time, and I was just I just think that the trad in my head might say that that the ideas in this book are are progressivism by another name, you know that like there are things like steam. And, you know, you talk about things like project-based learning and mindfulness is in there and the importance of agency. And even the word thrive, the use of a biological sort of uh, like terminology is a biological metaphor and the use of, you know, ecosystems, for example, rather than, you know, filling the pail, as it were, like growth or like sparking, sparking a fire and so on. Um, I know you discussed the, the knowledge versus skills debate a little bit earlier on in the book, but what would be your response to that, uh, to that criticism?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it has to be very careful with language because there's sort of progressive education and what gets sometimes lumped into that and then sort of progressivism. I mean, I think we would say, it, well, if it sounds like progressivism, that's sort of because it is. I think, you know, I don't think either of us would shy away from the fact that, um, you know, we're not trying to pretend to be like politically neutral here, um, not in any party political way, but just in the sense of like if you're arguing for, progress <laughs> if you're arguing for large-scale change like you you can't really call yourself a conservative but i think um i think there is still a slightly different you know we wouldn't say okay well this is just let's do all the things that have sometimes been called progressive education and let's just like do more of them so you know we're not arguing for any particular kind of pedagogy um, and and I think we would more say we'd want to be very careful to avoid some of the mistakes that um, progressive education movements in the past have sometimes made, which is that in trying to move towards things that are more child-centered or whatever it is, you usher in larger inequalities because children um you know aren't just sort of interchangeable um widgets that sort of all exist in the same environment they exist in very different environments and those environments because of inequalities in our wider society have very different levels of of resources and opportunities in them so I think the challenge for progressive education is how can we be kind of child-centered while also trying to um, remedy in some ways some of those wider inequalities and that that is a very that's a very difficult thing it sort of goes back to our conversation before about what's the right balance between choice and centralization so i think that that's where we'd want to distance it somewhat from from the kind of progressive education tradition but yeah no i i mean i i, I don't think we would claim that it's anything other than than sort of in that um broader direction
1: yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, that, that in the UK, I think there's been a little bit of a resurgence recently, but certainly for a while there, like progressivism was almost like a swear word. Like it was like, if you, if you were sort of like out and proud as a progressive educator, you were like ridiculed and pointed at and sort of sneered at. Um certainly among some, some quarters of the traditionalist uh, education community. But um but in other places in the world like the, you you have people who very proudly wear that badge of progressivism um and like you say you know like language can become quite loaded um but you 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 know you just you just put the nail on the head really didn't you that this is you're not arguing for 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 tinkering at the edges here this is you know a really a really thoroughgoing rationale for why we need to do things differently and a you know a really really quite comprehensive survey i learned a lot about lots of schools that i really want to go and visit and learn more about that are doing all of this really innovative practice um and that brings me to the to the to the final point in my in my gentle um critique which is like this idea of the the word thrive um and that like towards the end of the so the final bit of the book is about um is about scaling up and it's like how can we how can we scale this right the challenge of scale beyond beautiful exceptions um and i wonder whether the word thrive it's it sort of like it makes it seem quite like a simple problem like 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 these schools are thriving why can't we all um but i just wonder like whether there's not more of a trade-off than that and just as an example um Somebody who I won't I won't name, but like somebody who I know who who um new whose whose daughter worked in one of the schools that you mentioned in the book, which I also won't won't mention. Mm-hmm. But it was it was one of these schools that's very you know got a good reputation good good reputation, uh, and it's, it does things in a very sort of progressive way. Um, and the, the the and this is very anecdotal, right? So maybe take it with a pinch of salt. But the feedback that that he gave me was that you know these these young people are amazing at you know, raising money overnight and for, for for charities or for some campaign or directing a movie or, you know, they can just make stuff happen. They can build stuff. They can make stuff happen. They can get along with one another really well. But, and there is a but, you know, their their written literacy and numeracy scores weren't particularly great. And that seems to be quite an, an, an honest you know, sort of like reflection of like, oh, you know, like it seems obvious that if you're going to do more of one thing, then you're going to do less of something else, and that's probably another like what a traditionalist would say. Like, if you wanted to start to bring in all of this stuff, what do you want? What do you want us to do less of? You know, what is it that you think is a waste of time here? Um, and I wonder if the if it's maybe sort of more honest to have like a, a, a just a really. Open and honest debate, and I, and I think that the answer to this question is essentially one of divergence. You're like, if you're a traditionalist teacher and you you really believe that this is the, the the you know teaching your subject discipline and and only having you know subject disciplines taught is the way to go, then there should be a school for you, and there should be a place for you to send your kids as well. And likewise, if you're a parent who's happy with the idea that your kid might not be able to, you know, to spell particularly well in an age where spell check is on every device that going, but actually they can make stuff happen in the world. And you might think, well, actually I'm okay with that as well. And that this doesn't need to be a sort of a a one size fits all scaling up of these sort of, you know, schools that are doing things in quite a progressive way. I think that if we can just introduce greater diversity into the system, then you can build, you don't need to get 100% of people on board with it, which is sort of the 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 trap that lots of people fall into when they think about scaling things up it's like how can we scale this this up at a system level and then you end up with politics and it becomes this top-down thing which is doomed to failure from the outset so i just wonder whether whether divergence is is maybe a more useful way of thinking about it rather than just just sort of scaling up like these thriving examples
0: a hundred percent and i and i i want to be very careful because there were a number of really important points in there but um yeah i mean firstly just on the scale thing i think i mean i think we talk about it in the chapter a bit as that we definitely shouldn't understand scaling in that sort of replication mode um but i think scale is a word that people are often drawn to and are often using um and if we mean it just in the sense of like how do we do something at scale rather than how do we sort of scale in the business sense of sort of replicating one thing, Mm. then, then I think that is something, you know, from a, from a kind of, um, a quality perspective we have to aim for in some way we do want people to thrive at scale. Um, uh, so completely agree with you about this can look like many different things. And I think that's also where you thrive in some way was meant to capture the fact that, like the experience of thriving, what, what that actually entails is going to be different for different people, right? Because, um, you know, people are drawn to different things and, um, want to do different things. Um, the question of the trade-offs I think is very, very real. And, you know, I've absolutely been to lots of places where like they're doing fantastic things and you feel like, my God, I'd love to be in this classroom. And you sort of have a have a look in a in a few of the books they're writing in, and it's like the handwriting is almost legible, and you sort of feel like how can we um yeah how can we sort of square this square this circle? I think it comes down a lot to this as you say like really really hashing this out, really reason thinking about what are the things we can give up got a <laughs> got a very long list of things from you know everything from like quadratic equations to the lime skylls who uh a whole lot of bits of literature and history which it's not that they're not important like everything's important it's just that they're not perhaps the most vital things and i think we do have an opportunity particularly coming out this year to sort of say like you know what are the most vital things and they're not going to be the same for everybody but how can we make sure that we spend a bit more time on those and a bit less time on things which actually like 95 people out of 100 are going to say no I never really I never really use that I never really think about that and I think part of that is also embracing what technology can do a little bit more I think we still do spend quite a lot of time on the procedural practice of things that computers can do better than us and you know i think practice of things that we want to do is hugely important like if we want to speak a language if we want to play an instrument if we want to um do any kind of process we need to practice it but maybe we could spend more time practicing things like how can i use software to analyze a large data set rather than how can i do you know long division by hand yeah. because like really how useful is that whereas using a piece of software that is much better at computation than or calculation than than I am, and learning, actually practicing how to do that would be something much more, you know, much more valuable, I think, because it's much more usable, so much more applicable. Um, so so that I think those are the kind of ways we have to think about the trade-offs is, yes, there, there probably are, well, there definitely are going to be some things that people would become less good at if we were spending more time on other things, but I think we can make reasoned decisions about what those things maybe should be and and let young people make, make a few of those decisions for themselves. That
1: would be nice. Yes. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. Let's, let's pause this for now. As I say, I think it's probably that like, it's likely that we might return to this question of scale later on. Because as you know, I'm sort of obsessed with this uh, idea of implementation science and how we can how we can uh, to scale up ideas and and get people on board and build a coalition of the willing and so on. Mm. Um, I think that um, I I would very much like to continue that conversation. But let's pause it for now. So, as you probably are aware, on the Rethinking Education podcast, I really like to take a little bit of time to get to know the guest <laughs> and to to understand who it is that we're speaking to, because that seems to me that it's often the bit that's missing. Um, and so, I'd be interested to hear about you and your own experience of education uh, and your sort of your life story today. And and and, and you know, <laughs> you can you can leave out one or two details if you like. Um, and one one of the things is that I'm interested in is this idea of significant learning, you know, like ideas that have, or moments, meetings, chances, things that have really shaped you as a person. So, so why don't we start with, with your experience of school? What kind of a student were you?
0: What kind of student? Yeah. This is a good question. So my experience of school was mostly um, very good, I guess, with some exceptions it was also, I imagine, quite unusual. I mean, I think everybody's experience of school was pretty unusual, but I was at a I was at a private school. I was at a selective private school um, that was very sort of high performing. Um and so I it was very, very academic. And I was kind of aware that it was like at the time, and I sort of used academic there almost like pejoratively. <laughs> um, but like and very exam focused um and so we had we have fantastic teachers i was incredibly fortunate in that respect um but i think it is also what started my sort of fascination with um with with the role of exams in education because i was very conscious that we were sitting there as like some of the most privileged people in the country um and yet we were predominantly bored (laughs) and um, and also like not really engaging with with a lot of the sort of things that one was reading about externally or just like aware of going on around us Um, and I think the school I was at I know has, has sort of done a lot in the last 10 years or so to try to become more outward facing but I think there is just a limit to how much you can do that while also having everybody focus on getting like absolutely sort of top scores and things. Mm. And so it created this sense of like, okay, well, we're optimizing for something. Like we're optimizing for getting these like, and I say scores rather than grades, because it's literally like, you know, the number out of 300 people cared about, not that not the teachers, but we as students cared about like, have you got a 297 or a 293 or whatever in your A-levels? So, so we're sort of, we're optimizing for something. And yet it was clearly not the thing, you know, our system allows you to do that, to sort of pour a lot of energy into into optimising something while leaving a lot of other stuff out that would be useful or important or meaningful for a kind of a, a wider life.
1: Yeah. and so And so did you feel like there was a lot of pressure on you to perform in that environment? Or did you see that among your peers in your in your year where you know that when you know that your parents have paid a lot of money for you to go to this to this elite establishment <laughs> do you feel that you sort of there's this you know there's actually quite a little leeway you you need to sort of grind this out and to 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 perform and to to achieve the goods
0: yeah to be honest I think so much of that pressure was internal rather than like I think everyone around us and I should say it was an all-girls school, so we were all girls, Um, everyone around us was often trying to sort of um, counteract that sense of pressure um, because I think the school had a a reputation as being pressurised and there had been, you know, uh, people were more aware of the kind of mental health challenges around that. Um, And yet it was still very much there. I think just in the sense that, like, if you're in a group where everybody is very high performing sort of not being in any small way means you suddenly feel like a feel like a failure so you were yeah I think we were putting a lot of effort into that um while also obviously you know doing the teenage thing of sort of trying not to appear like we were putting too much effort in (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah. Okay. And so you say that the, the, your spark of interest in in uh, exams or in education more widely started at school as you were thinking, I'm not really sure if this is what we should be doing at this point in time.
0: Yeah, and it also came from just like really liking some of my teachers and liking the idea of teaching. Um, and I used to do um, tutoring as my way of kind of earning money in the in the holidays and and just sort of quite enjoyed that like working with young people around stuff and younger people and um so so it's sort of in the back of my mind that I might be interested in going into teaching but it was also the idea of well, I don't really want to teach GCSEs I like particularly (laughs) particularly low GCSEs but um I did end up I did end up then going at one point quite a bit later and working as like an intervention tutor with students around English GCSE. Um, and still, sort of them but I can see how you can do a lot creatively with them. You know, I think teachers do manage to find amazing ways to to make them interesting, despite the structures. And I've also, I think, developed. It's one of the things I've sort of changed my mind about the most, perhaps, like the the good aspects of of exams and the kind of system that we have, or at least the reasons why it has survived. Um, particularly yeah around these kind of questions of how do we ensure some sort of consistency um from from a perspective of equality. But um I still think I still think it is the thing that if we could if we could adapt it to move that dial a bit more towards allowing more more choice, it would be genuinely good for, for everybody, um, no matter sort of, you know, what kind of context they're entering it in.
1: Yeah. Yeah I mean when you when you phrase it like that I sometimes feel like it's actually not that m- much that needs to happen like schools I agree with you that schools are fundamentally a really good idea and that it's a, you know to have you build not everybody not everybody does think that but I do um and 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 you know they they're full of people who really care about kids and subject disciplines are a good idea and it comes back to what you were saying earlier it's like to argue for for cross disciplinary or multidisciplinary stuff to happen in schools that's not to say that we should completely abolish subject disciplines hmm. it's just that you have a bit of both <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah. like it seems to be the best of both worlds and it doesn't seem like like i love the phrase the phrase just like turn the dial towards more choice it does sometimes almost seem like fundamentally it's sort of that simple that we could just sort of make a few tweaks that would increase that would increase the flexibility, increase the diversity, increase agency, increase thriving within this system. It doesn't seem like it would be there's that much sort of loosening of the screws that needs to be done in order to allow that to happen.
0: Well, yeah, but I, I think the difficulty then, and this kind of gets into some of your interests around implementation science, is that typically in the begin the beginning of that move, things are really difficult because it's it's difficult having a different kind of timetable or teaching in a different way or teaching with different people or teaching different kind of material, you know, we're just, we're not going to be as good at it as we were at the thing we were doing before. Yeah. And so then you get the kind of classic implementation dip type thing. And that's usually at the point where if something has been um, proclaimed in a kind of top-down way from a policy level, they start getting gold, cold feet because everyone starts saying, oh, this isn't working very well. And they rain back and, and the jar moves back. And looking, you can look at a number of countries and the way that their curriculums and assessments have tended to go over the last like few decades and see a bit of that fluctuation back and forth. And so I think that's where we have to be, we have to be really clear on advance, in advance that like that, that will happen. There will be a bit of a implementation dip and then think about how can we use things like better implementation approaches to try and avoid that as much as possible
1: yeah 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 absolutely um yes and yeah we'll we'll, we'll maybe get into all that you, you make you make an excellent point so so did you qualify as a teacher at some point or did you sort of go down the academic route i know you went to. no
0: the... I, I i went down the academic route um so yeah so where do we get to end of school i went to university and um while there i actually did apply for a teaching job I applied for a teaching job at a private school so that I could have just kind of gone straight in um, because I wanted to try it out and at the same time as doing that I applied for a master's in um, education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education because I had met and I can never remember now whether it was actually Guy Claxton (laughs) but I think it, I, I want to say that it was, cause I did, I do remember meeting him at a conference and him being an, and kind of him having a big impression on me, but it was either him or um, someone called Richard Pring, who was the head of the mm. education department at my university who said, um, oh, you know, I was sort of talking about stuff I was interested in and they were like, oh, well, if you really want to study that, you should, you should try and go to the Harvard graduate school of education, which was where they have this thing called project zero, which, um, Howard Gardner and a number of other people have been involved in David Perkins sort of looking at the aspects of education that are understudied. They started it because it was like, oh, we know zero about this stuff. So a lot about the arts, a lot about more kind of thinking how we think, how we develop, um, really fascinating range of projects. And more recently, Howard Gardner has focused a lot on kind of values. And he has a whole book called Truth, Beauty, Goodness, and he's sort of not afraid of taking this really quite old, old school, I think, like approach to just like, look, let's talk about this stuff that we really value. Um, so yeah, so I I really wanted to go there. Um, I applied, applied for several scholarships, um, got some scholarship funding, not enough. And then my granny died. And I tell this bit of the story only because I think it is really important when people look at these sort of um, people's trajectories. My granny died and had lived in a flat in London so her flat was sold and each of us as cousins inherited a bit of money and that allowed me to go and do a master's right and I say this because I think I think master's education is becoming this sort of new source of inequality and I think it is really important that we recognize like that it's a lot about you know who gets to go to fancy places like Harvard yes sometimes it's because people have won amazing scholarships and sometimes it's just because people have been very fortunate with a kind of mini, you know, windfall that's allowed them to, to pay for that kind of thing. So I think, um, yeah, that was, it was a hugely influential year. Um, very it just, yeah, was able to study a lot of things that I had never been able to study at school um, about minds and brains, but also about sort of society and, bits of the social sciences um and then just kind of got really fascinated in that and so that was that was really the start of um heading in a bit more of a research direction Mm,
1: amazing to have worked with all those people some of the some of the giants of of uh this field especially like people like david perkins so were you working quite closely with them did you do your phd there as well
0: I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I worked more, David Berkins had kind of retired by the time I arrived. He was just around on the edges. Um, I was a a research assistant for Howard Gardner.
1: Right. Amazing. Um, And then you came back here.
0: Yeah, so actually, I came back, so uh, one year master's, came back and worked, that's when I started working for innovation unit um, and was with them for a couple of years before I went back and then did the PhD.
1: I see. Okay. And so with regard to this idea of significant learning, you've spoken about this conversation either with K- Claxton or with Richard <laughs> Pring, um, that, that sort of shaped you towards thinking about going to, to Harvard. Um, are there any sort of other moments that, that that leap out at you as you look back over your life that you think, oh, that really, that was really quite a pivotal moment that that changed things?
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think there've been a there've been a number, but um, she wanted one of the things that when I was um, at innovation unit we did we there was this team who was more kind of research side which I was in, and then a team that was more like designers, um, so um, people who would. Go and do kind of ethnography in places, so sort of observe how people were interacting with services, and they were service designers. So things like early childcare services, social services, health services, they would go and observe how people in- interact and and um, and their experiences of these services, and then they would work with the users of services, so sort of citizens, to to create new service models. And on the research side, we had the opportunity to go and kind of shadow these people, and so I went on a on a day of ethnography um with uh someone who was looking at people's experience of um it was around that time when the the kind of troubled families programs that that sort of came out in the early part of the last government where they were trying to um sort of bring together various different parts of of social care and social work and give somebody one person who they would interact with uh, you know across these different kind of services they were using um you know <laughs> lots that we could say about the ups and downs of, of that particular program but the piece of ethnography was so interesting because it was just an opportunity to spend the day with somebody who had had a bunch of difficulties in their lives was experiencing a bunch of what we would kind of think of as social problems um things like you know alcoholism um unemployment um you know interaction around with social workers around their child and that that kind of you know I had never directly experienced any of those social problems because I'd um you know grown up in a bit of London where there's certainly a fair amount of that about but it just hadn't you know directly been part of my life and but this was it was such she was so nice the woman she was just like really easy to chat to um she'd been through a a breakup and it's not that I didn't expect her to be nice, but it's that I didn't expect her necessarily to be so kind of um, for her emotional experience to be so similar to what some of mine was. And I think it um just really brought home that, like, I think the more we can connect as people at a sort of emotional level, the more we can overcome some of these perceptions of difference that I think really, chip away at our ability to uh like live in societies alongside each other so that all sounds a bit distant from education but I think it was very much informed some of the thinking that's ended up in in Thrive and some of the way that I think one of the things that often goes wrong in school is when we're so pressured for time always because you know there's a timetable and we've got a certain amount of things that we've got to do in every part of that timetable. And there's just so many expectations loaded on about what we're going to get these young people to achieve, that we just don't have the time to get to that kind of emotional level. Um not necessarily even as as teachers and students. I think that's not necessarily always the goal, but just like as students between themselves or as students and with the things they're studying. Um, and that's something that I I think is sort of at the core of what I would want to see more of in education, that it's not it's not just so much about like, I don't know, when people talk about deeper learning, one of my, my advisor talks about deeper learning. And I think I do really like it as a phrase, but what I often mean by it is like, how do we get more to that sort of level where, um, yeah, we can just be, be a bit more connected. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. Thank you. And I don't think that it is disconnected from, from education, although I can see why sometimes people might think that it is, it's something that's certainly starting to feature much more in my own thinking that, that actually fundamentally, this is an emotional situation, like that young people have an emotional relationship Mm. to school. Fundamentally, they either like it and they look forward to it or they, or they're not, or they're bored. Like you were describing earlier. Um, and we need to engage with one another on that level or else we're just sort of missing the person like that if we are only thinking of them as like cognitive like pots that we're sort of measuring and and you know asking them to do retrieval practice and that's It's another way in which I think that we sometimes mischaracterize to go back to the traditionalist progressive thing. Traditionalist stuff is often really just about individualist stuff, like, like things like retrieval practice and memory and the cognitive architecture of the mind and all of this language that people are using. That's all stuff that's happening inside an individual's head and building rich schema of memories and so on. And that's really worthwhile work, but there's nothing really in there about... Social learning and about lots of the stuff that you talk about in the book about developing empathy and being able to listen to one another and putting ourselves in other people's shoes and connecting emotionally to one another and to this wider story of which we're all a part. Um, and I sometimes think that that's sort of the first thing that needs to happen in 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 terms of, you know, like coming to terms with the harm that has been done. All of these conversations that are happening at the moment around. For example, you know the colonial era, and you know like mm-hmm. some people are shutting this down and saying, "This is ridiculous, you know that was a long time ago, and i 'm not racist just because you know um you know our forefathers did x y or z that doesn 't mean that you have to bring it all into the now, and other people are saying, "No, we absolutely do have to explore this because this stuff is really unresolved, but it feels like the way to get past that is to to go through a process you, you know like this the, the sort of the peace and the truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm type processes that have happened in South South Africa and also in in Ireland um, where people just sort of come together and just to share stories and to listen to one another and and to set a few ground rules and to say we're going to sit not in judgment but just in understanding and just trying to just connect with one another and just to sort of to if unless you unless you have that unless you have a situation where people are plugged in to some sort of unifying story and the unifying story is often one of suffering it's something that it comes to everybody at some point in our lives you know and it's something that everybody can in some sense relate to um i think that it's hugely important that we acknowledge that because otherwise we're just sort of we we're, we're only playing with half a deck of cards and and it's not the it's not the half that counts
0: yeah yeah no i mean i th- i think <laughs> there's so many directions one could go from that but i do think it appears in education in so many different ways as a as a as a kind of blockage for things where things that we might describe as like, oh, someone's, you know, got difficulty with this or that comes down to that there's something, there's something emotional going on that we haven't really worked out because it does just take more more time to get to that kind of stuff. You know, it involves a lot of a lot of trust and and then also just yeah, people figuring out what's going on for them. And this is a much more kind of silly sort of example but the other place this really hit home to me was when I was um as part of my PhD I had to do well wanted to do more kind of quantitative methods and so beyond the like required courses I signed up for advanced quantitative methodology which ended up being literally one of my favorite courses um but also definitely the one I did worst in and as I was doing it it was it was just like relying on a lot of kind of parts of calculus I hadn't really ever done and I developed this like real emotional block to working on my problem sets because I like just did not like that experience of finding something really difficult um and it yeah it just made me really think back and think differently about some of the kids that I worked with whether it's you know tutoring or at the school who were um uh like when someone is struggling with something sort of how much of that is about them not being able to get it. And sometimes it is about, you know, that they haven't been presented something in the right way and how much is it just, they just don't want to start trying to work through it because it's, you know, it's painful um so yeah i think i have a lot of time for the for the sort of um theories and practices that are trying to break through some of that and that's actually i appreciated a lot in in your book and even just the title the fear is the mind killer thing you know i think it it really is and it's often that that fear of the sort of emotional discomfort of something
1: yeah you, you've got to get down into the weeds you really do that's that's um that's where all the action is at okay, so let 's move in to the rethinking education part of this conversation. Now, I think that you you 're probably sort of like better primed for this than than anybody that I've spoken to so far because essentially this part of the conversation comes in three parts: What are the positives that you think are really good that you'd like to see more of um, what are the challenges and and how might we fix those challenges um and in terms of the in terms of the you know the promising stuff the positives. You've just written a book <laughs> that's, like, jam-packed full of Pathfinder schools who are doing stuff that's uh, that's pretty awesome. So I wonder if I could just ask you to sort of to pick your top three, maybe, or two. Like, what what do you see that's happening out there? And it might be stuff that's in Thrive. It might be stuff that's happened, you know, that you've come across since since the book went to the printers. Uh, that you think oh wow if we could scale that up just that one alone might actually go a really long way
0: yeah i mean i guess firstly i i would think about it maybe to to avoid that sort of scaling a specific thing um and maybe think about it more in terms of like what are the what are the shifts that seem really positive that could kind of continue so like in the past year i think lots of people have have observed that just having this opportunity for people to spend their days operating in a very different different way is a big opportunity because it kind of indicates okay we can we can do things differently and like the the world doesn't fall in it's also highlighted a lot of the challenges that there would be in making any kind of um you know significant sudden shift and, and I think everybody would want to avoid having to do anything like the sort of sudden rethinking that people had to do this year and then the very difficult balancing of like hybrid learning stuff so i think it's um, but it's it's sort of like a like a trial run like in you know in design when we talk about prototyping or iteration or whatever that language is really just to indicate like nothing ever goes right the first time you try it because there's always going to be unexpected things that crop up that you then have to work on and adapt so I think it's sort of given us an opportunity to think about, OK, if we, for example, have all young people working on slightly different things at slightly different times, because in the case of you know, the lockdowns, they were doing it at home initially. What does that look like? Like what kind of challenges does that throw up? So obviously it throws up one to do with inequality and in very different home environments and also ones in terms of like, how do you manage that? How do you know what people are doing? So then you might say, OK, let's like bring that back in school and have people doing that in school but that you know that that does then create a real um a real opportunity to say could we have something that looked a little bit more like that sort of home learning going on in school so that people might be working on slightly different things at different times or choosing to focus on slightly different things for different amounts of time or choosing totally different things to to work on so I think we have a we have a sort of stage one you know first uh, alpha not quite beta tested version of of what it would look like for things to be just quite a lot more varied. Um, so so yeah I do I do see that as a positive um, as difficult as it has been and it's you know been a lot easier in higher education relatively than it has been in schools but it's still been um, meant a fair bit of rejigging. I think we should definitely see it as a first step towards something that could could genuinely be better on a lot of fronts.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. That's very promising. So uh, more variation and choice. What what else do you see that you that you like to look of?
0: Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, we've we've talked a lot about assessment, but that is, I think, the real other opportunity. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of different things being tested out in different places at the moment that are trying to get towards um, whether it's like the the next level of sort of portfolio assessments like what are things where people can produce more individual pieces of work or group pieces of work where the sort of goal of the assessment process is to create something um, rather than to sort of respond to something and again this is all about balance and so um standardized assessments i think will always have an important role to play in any sort of full system or set of assessments but i think alongside them there do need to be these opportunities to um to create and produce things i was talking to, to people just yesterday about the model of of kind of art schools and what happens in them and likewise in art classes in schools all around the country where People have an opportunity to create an individual piece of work, usually within certain constraints or expectations, and they know it's going to be evaluated in a particular way. And they have models of what good looks like. And you know, I think the the examples are there, and to see how that is being adapted and sort of um, carried out into more um, interdisciplinary kinds of projects, I think is a is a really exciting development that has now, I think, enough of a of a real footprint of practice um for it to have the opportunity to to really grow
1: yeah yeah and so is this stuff that you've mainly so on the rethinking assessment website there's like a bit that's like assessment around the world and so is this what you're talking about that like some of this survey of, of things that are done elsewhere not so like i mean art you know you're talking about art that does happen in in this country but like some of these portfolio assessments and group assessments
0: yeah i think for the most part yeah it is in it is in other countries at the moment um but, you know, you, well, you know as well, that you're always kind of coming across schools in England who are really pushing the boundaries with the stuff. And at Key Stage 3, I think some schools are already doing um, interesting examples of this. Um, and it exists to an extent in stuff like, um, you know, the HPQ and EPQ, which uh, EPQ is kind of increasingly taken up. I think um, that can also be an example of. Something we could see is, okay. well, this is a a first iteration of what this might look like. And what have we learned from some of the unintended consequences about perhaps excessive focus on the sort of process that people go through and perhaps not enough on the on the quality of the work in different domains that comes out the other end. Um, But I think, again, it's a case of looking at some of these things as, okay. well, what have we what have we learned from that? And what would we what insights would we take from that to feed into a slight redesign of something that would be even better?
1: Mm, yeah yeah and as you can see how it sort of ties in with your first positive as well that you know we're talking again about more variation more choice um a little bit of flexibility um let's let's go for one more um in the positives column what else do you see that you like the look of
0: uh now you're maybe p- pushing my optimism <laughs> I, you know i think i think there are obviously there's there's a lot of things um a lot of just like, you know, very individual examples, it's sort of hard to pick out something that is definitely a lot more exciting than, than elsewhere. Um, Yeah. I'm sort of hesitant. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't want to focus on any individual institutions just because I think I really don't want to give that impression that it's about like scaling an individual, like a model because I really don't think it is. I think it is a lot more about a shift in our um, desires for what we want from schools. So so I guess a different one would be um, some of the surveying around what parents want from education is really strongly giving the indication that, um, you know, it, it, it is something more holistic, we want their children to be happy, to have opportunities. Um, that it isn't about a kind of narrow vision of success. Populous is this one interesting group in the US. They've done quite a lot of surveying on this. And in in England, Big Change, actually, this is, yeah, people should really, really look out for the work that Big Change is doing that's coming up soon, where they're having these sort of big education conversations, partnering with that group around, um, yeah, what people want from from education and the school systems. Um, And some of their surveying already in partnership with Brookings has um has yeah given indications that that sort of parents are really up for for change. Um but I think it's then how does one, what does that, what does that will get kind of channeled into? So um, this brings us more to questions about like the politics of education and what are the structures now, what are the opportunities for parents to um express their their hopes, their aspirations? What are the opportunities, the channels for young people to express their hopes and, and um, aspirations? And that's where I get a little bit less optimistic. So I was sort of trying to think of what I would, what I would point to um, in this country. And I think it's just so varied now um, about, yeah, like what the, the kind of democratic process around schools, whether those channels even exist at all, um but at least the the fact that the will is being expressed is is a reason for hope
1: yeah i can see see that i've definitely pushed your optimism to the limits there i mean i like i, I think that to pick the to pick the the, the good bit out of out of that it, like you say yeah like it's um it's it's sort of a side effect of the pandemic isn't it it's obviously been such a rough couple of years nearly now a year and a half for so many people but it does seem to have given lots of people pause for thought, and you know this community that's grown up around this podcast, the rethinking uh, education community, the rethinking assessment thing, big change. The next people to be published on this on this podcast are um, from Square Pegs, that are looking at mm-hmm. um, uh, how to bring about about um, improvements for young people who are who are struggling in school, and that like, like you say, the appetite for change is. Really, really, really there, and it's a there's abundant evidence of it, and that is not to be overlooked. You know, that's if without that you're on a hide into nothing. And so, yeah. even though the politics around this is are difficult, as you say, at least there's the desire for something different for for young people and for adults as well in education. This isn't all about young people.
0: And I think even just to add on that, you know, because I think it is good to to really get the full picture here, like things like the Foundation for Education Development, even like the Times Commission around education, like just the fact that there does seem to be a lot of energy um, that people want to invest in this question of like, let's ask really big questions about education and what it's for. Um, Yeah, I I think that is definitely a reason for hope. And yeah.
1: What was that second thing? I haven't heard of those two things. The Foundation for Educational Development
0: yeah so fed fed depending on fed i think most of the um group of uh yeah s- schools they've got a really i think they've done a great job at sort of bringing together a pretty broad coalition um they are trying to focus mostly on like system architecture so sort of staying out of some of the questions around things like curriculum and assessment but really thinking about like how should policy about education be made and their real focus is on getting more of a long-term plan for education in this in, in England so that it's a bit less back and forth and quite a lot of thinking about kind of how can it integrate more with things like local labour markets and um so so a bit more emphasis on on that side of things but I think yeah just really really important work to be bringing together that sort of coalition and just having lots of conversations um and then the Times Education Commission only started quite recently. So um un- unknown exactly where they'll go yet, but they're asking again a lot of big questions. The first one of their their sort of themes is around the purpose of education. And so um yeah, it'll be interesting to see see where they take that
1: right okay thank you i'll look those up okay so so it's clear that we've sort of we've bleeded uh naturally into bleeded bled into the um let's say let's call it segue is less yeah. horrible we've segued smoothly <laughs> into the uh the challenges um what do you what do you see as as the big the biggest things and we, I mean, we've talked about a lot of this already you know assessment is is an obvious one um but we've I think we've done that what What else do you see um in terms of the biggest challenges and it might be that you want to do you want to continue some of that thinking that you just started about you know the politics of like where do we go with all of this desire for change
0: yeah I mean I think that that would definitely be one direction. I think there is a really important role for um for political leaders essentially to like do some of the work of organizing those vague indicators of public will into more um, coherent and specific programs. On the other hand, you know, we've talked a bit already about the challenges of not wanting things to be just kind of top down (laughs) implemented. So it's, it's, I think it's a very uh, cautious dance that has to happen there where it would almost be the death knell of a lot of this stuff if it just got like proclaimed from the center but you need some really careful work on the enabling architecture. Um, And so, yeah, I think you need a a group of um, civil servants, political leaders to say, look, we are really going to try carefully to work out how we can create a more enabling environment for some of this work and without trying to sort of um, Dictate one direction or one model to be scaled. So, um, that is something I think we don't quite have yet. Um, I think the, the deeper, deepest perhaps challenge is just this fact that education has this dual role where on the one hand, um, it's this kind of, uh, you know, individual, both private and public good about how you develop yourself to become a thriving member of a thriving society. On the other hand, it's a positional good that people use to um, sort of win opportunities. And um, I think it's really, really difficult to know how do we strike the balance between making sure that we're not kind of um, removing that opportunity opportunity for people to sort of uh climb up some ladder like <laughs> my partner sometimes jokes with me when I talk about assessment he's like oh you're just pulling up the ladder behind you because i've benefited from a lot of these assessment systems like there've been ways that i've been able to like win opportunities literally and so i i think we have to be really careful about making sure we're not sort of removing that but on the other hand when we look at overall the damage that those kind of systems do um you know there's clearly a case for change so that it's been really interesting to see the embrace of some of the work around meritocracy like the, the problems with meritocracy that have come out recently so you know like michael Sandel's the tyranny of meritocracy and um here david goodhart has a book head heart and hand which is getting at a lot of the same themes and i think what's interesting about them is they are you know not just saying okay well we obviously don't live in meritocracies because there's we don't have anything like it, equality of opportunity but also, even if we did, the sort of type of value system that a meritocracy encourages—this is what Michael Young was warning about over long—like is really dangerous. This sort of idea that if you that if you can prove yourself in co- some kind of test, in like the original rise of meritocracy it was intelligence tests. Like now, it would be other kind of exams that you sort of have a right to um a better life than other people like that's that's a horrible idea when we sort of look at it like that and yet that is very much the kind of society we live in so um i think the way we move beyond that is only by really hacking away at what is it that in our current society um props up that sort of one-dimensional view of like merit or talent or whatever it is how do we really chip away at that and say look there isn't like there there isn't just like one thing that's intelligence um or or if there is you know there's something that turns up on iq tests but it's sort of not um it's so far away from being the be all and end all that if we really want to have if we want to have thriving societies we need to have like a really plural view of all of the different kinds of things that we value that are good all the different kinds of things that people can do and that, um, can contribute. And, and yeah, I think, I think we're still quite far from having an education system that has that sort of value system underpinning it. Like it still aims much too much between towards sort of collapsing everything into one like hierarchy of, of sort of performance.
1: Wow. <laughs> you you're not wrong in saying that that is the deepest level of challenge that's that that is fascinating and it's not something that i've particularly thought about for quite a long time so it's going to take me a little bit of thinking about so so you're talking about just let me just recap so you're talking about how on on the one hand you know education is like a, an emancipatory thing that it's like you know it it allows people to to better themselves and further themselves and it opens doors and qualifications. But there's also this inequality that's sort of baked in that the, the, the people who do even better out of that, the ones who get two nine sevens or two nine nines or whatever in their A-levels, that that opens doors that are closed to others and that that is rooted in a narrow view of merit. Is that what you, is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think this is um essentially, essentially, Yes, but the the there's different views on where that um, where that kind of rationing of opportunities comes from. So one account of this would be okay well we just like we have these arbitrary bottlenecks on higher education, which mean that we create these like very selective moments when we sort of don't really need to have them. So um, like why couldn't we just, you know radically expand the number of places in the russell group and anybody who got more than like a cna level or whatever could could go to one of those institutions i i think it's an interesting thought experiment i think you know we should really think seriously about like why we can't just do that and um um an interesting point of comparison is like um Malcolm Gladwell has this thing about the difference between Canadian and US institutions and the number of people who go to like the high status Canadian institutions, like University of Toronto, UBC, is sort of two the order of 10, a hundred times as many as are in the entering class of like the US Ivy Leagues.
1: Yeah, yeah. Listen to that.
0: Why do we have these just sort of incredibly narrow entry points into what are perceived as high status institutions? But then one can say, well, why are they perceived as high-status institutions? Literally just because they massively ration their entry. Like the selectivity of the institutions is one of the key indicators that's used in the league tables of universities, like stuff like the U.S. news rankings. So it's because they're turning so many people away that they get to claim to be high-status. So we've got this sort of, like, created this scarcity good of very selective higher education, which is then a feeder into um, very competitive roles in labor markets, which are then like massively rewarded in terms of income. You know, if you're going into top law firms, top banks, top tech companies, top consulting firms, like you're getting massively paid supposedly for your sort of talent. and, And all of that kind of potentially just feeds back to the fact that you were like a few points higher on a kind of entry system to get into one of these institutions. So I, yeah, there's, it's very difficult to say exactly how much of this is just like a mirage that we create through unnecessarily selective entry systems and how much of it is like actual sort of differences in people's effort that they're putting into work or whatever. Um, But I'm relatively confident that we could do a lot more opening out, like we could that we should sort of see a lot of the status and prestige that hangs around some of these places. And in particular, a lot of the incomes that are given to people who come out of those places as like unnecessary and as a kind of illusion
1: yeah yeah and it and it doesn't necessarily particularly benefit the people who are the supposed winners in the system either because the because of, because of this like false scarcity, this competition to perform, I remember reading Peter Thiel's book a while ago, zero to one, and he was talking about how he was he was a law student. And how, like, out of tens of thousands of law graduates each year, only a few dozen get this thing called a Supreme Court clerkship. And he was desperate to get one, and he thought it had gone well, and um, he thought that he'd be set for life if he got it, and he didn't. And at the time, he was devastated. But obviously, looking back now, he's really pleased that he didn't fall into that trap, which is that, you know, like, you're you're now a success, and so we're going to put you there, you know. And, you know, again, we come back to that question of agency. Um, like how much choice did he really have uh, as a naturally gifted student who was probably, you know, had, a, you know, maybe a privileged upbringing and was able to access the top universities and so on? And all of a sudden, you know, that's where you go. Um, it doesn't necessarily benefit those people either. And it seems to me that this is what, and as somebody who works closely with Howard Gardner, it seems to me that that was what he was driving at. This is what he was driving at with the whole multiple intelligences theory which seems to have been widely sort of uh, if not discredited and just sort of you know um like people just cock a snoop at it now like it's not <laughs> something that's considered to be to be serious but but it's one of those ideas that that makes sort of just intuitive sense that like of course there are multiple ways in which you can be smart like i don't know why it is that that's considered to be such a controversial
0: idea yeah i mean i think i think it was an idea very much of its time um uh, it's almost sort of 40 years old now and like all of the underlying subjects in terms of cognitive psychology and, and neuroscience have moved on quite a lot and so it's more i don't think it's so much like debunked in the way of like a learning styles or something as it has been sort of transcended by a more complex view of of capability i think what it highlights is you know, he used the term intelligences to make this kind of clear step away from this one-dimensional view of one sort of intelligence. And now I think we would recognise it's very difficult to unpick the difference between like innate or latent capabilities, what we might think of as an intelligence, versus like learned capabilities. So I have quite a lot of time for like all the David Diddard stuff about like making people smarter um, I wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms, but I think, yeah, that's exactly what we can do. We can, like, make people better at a lot of things. That's sort of what what education can be. But I think we can just, we can make people smarter in a lot of different ways by studying different things and that we sh- somehow have to figure out as a society how not to then collapse those things back into one hierarchy. So, and that's where I think our obsession with a lot of those sort of... Um, needing things to be ultimately comparable like is this an is this an a or is this a b that leads us to forget well like are we talking about maths or art like these are two very different domains and and we should be thinking more about the actual capabilities than about just like where does it where does it fall on a ranking um but but yeah that is it is where it gets really difficult because we're we're then using those rankings to make decisions about selection for for seemingly scarce resources, so that sort of brings one back to the question of well how how scarce really are they, or how scarce do they need to be
1: yeah yes um and and you know, and here we're back to the question of politics again and so so towards the end of of thrive you identified um some that like you were saying like in order to in order to sort of to um allow thriving to happen on a wider scale i'm also trying to avoid this this uh, language of, of scaling up um you identify so like some some inhibitors like some key inhibitors things like things that are preventing um th- this stuff from happening and one of them is scrutiny uh mm-hmm. there's a section called smothered by scrutiny um and hyper accountability and so on and it that that is clearly what we've got, and and maybe there's no better example of that than the current total. I don't even know what you would call it. It's like multiple pileups of, of of bad decision making that have been made around assessments um, during the pandemic, and the, the recent sort of emphasis on ins- insisting that teachers uh, teachers assessed grades are going to be scrutinized to a, a really quite significant degree. Um, so teachers are now sort of doing the the jobs of, of education um, exam boards um i mean that's that's coming from a conservative government and like you said earlier you know conservatives by their nature aren't progressives and so it's hard to it's hard to see how how um, this is going to this is going to come about through political mm-hmm. change and even if in if Gavin Williamson banged his head and woke up one day and thought right i'm gonna loosen the screws the next education minister would come along and tighten them up again because you know that's what education ministers do but it seems like i don't know for, for me you you were saying earlier that we need to get politicians on board i sort of think that politics is a lost cause as a, as a mechanism of change because it's so top down and because it's so inherently conservative even even with supposedly progressive parties you know the the left of slightly left of center parties that you occasionally get in power they're not really changing things in anything like the the, the way that they need to change
0: yeah i mean i i think um i, I think you're obviously right i don't think we would have seen anything very different from a from a labor government to be honest um and i think it's a bit less about sort of left versus right as the hope as it is more about like a government that really wanted to think carefully about what decentralization in education would look like like i think it's very very difficult to make very to make good decisions when you're for so many schools at once we are incredibly centralized in our governance of education in england and we're also you know a pretty big country in terms of just number of number of kids and number of teachers so i think we sort of have to admit that we need to we need to decentralize a bit more um And whether that's, you know, through academies or or local authorities, I think there's there's sort of pros and cons for for either way. But I think at the moment, some of the really impactful decisions are still held very centrally, um, and that that would ideally change just to move the balance a little bit more towards decisions being able to be made a bit closer to students. Um, The other point there... If I can remember where it's going it was about um yeah, the the kind of politics of it being not just about like the um the oh, the smothering, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, the smothering, yeah, i I mean, I think this is just because there's such these decisions feel so high stakes, so it is very connected with this thing of, um can we decouple, like separate a little bit what happens with educational assessment? from the opportunities people then get going on like if there wasn't such a feeling that like oh well it's drastically important like whether you get your your c or your four or or whether you get your your eight or your nine or whatever it is that would lessen some of the need for these to be sort of so precise and reliable um in in terms of the marks we're giving because I think, yeah, we, we just we can't make the judgments that precisely or that reliably. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the sort of desire to 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 break that link a little bit between assessments and the way that they're used for selection decisions and kind of say, look, well, actually, most of the time these opportunities aren't that rationed and where they do really, really have to be rationed because of literally like, I don't know, space limits in buildings and stuff, although we could even think about how technology might help us overcome those, then we should use a separate test for that. We shouldn't subject everybody in the country to a particular system just because, you know, there aren't quite enough bedrooms in this university halls.
1: Okay, I mean, so so we're we're into the we're into the final bit, really, aren't we now? Where we're where we're thinking about fixes to these very very challenging problems. Um, Decentralisation. Um, I mean, even even like rethinking assessment. You know, let, let's say rethinking assessment. Like, right, which is a really interesting group, and it's a very diverse group. And like Lord Baker is in it. Is you know, um with the with the architects of GCSEs who's saying that, you know, they're now no longer fit for purpose, um, and many other people as well. But it doesn't have any, you know, <laughs> it's not part of the state machinery, is it? It's just like a group of interested people who've started this thing up. And even if they do the most robust, amazing piece of work that's ever been done, and they there's these two working parties, um, you know, how we actually bring about that change it's it's really hard to see and I'm interested to, to, to hear so to go back to what you were saying about you said it's not about scaling a model it's about shifting our desires can you can you break that open a little bit because it seems to me that this is where you see things going that it's th- th- this is more about shifts yeah. rather than about sort of like like um focused attempts at scaling up particular practices that you think are good
0: yeah I mean I think I think it's When one sees that, okay, well, you know, like, why do we have to do qualifications? Well, because they're sort of partly because the government says we have to, partly because they're valued in society. It's about how do we create something different that could also be valued. So the archetype we have is something like the IB, which took a really long time to get going, but is now valued. And that's partly because it was, um, attached to some you know elite schools who started doing it um although many of the ones that that started out weren't necessarily um in that position so we do have examples of where you can develop an alternative and people want to opt into it because it offers a different kind of education so that's sort of one model of where rethinking assessment might go the people within it who very much want to avoid that, and they want to make sure that it's something that like any school in the country could do. The IB at the moment is still quite expensive for a lot of schools to buy into, and it's also in our accountability system like very difficult for state schools to to choose. Um, so I think in the in the design of options, there's a lot of thinking about how can we make sure that whatever new opportunities might for assessment might come out of this that there's something that really any school could do um and then it's about waiting for a kind of policy window as you talk about like king's kind of three streams theory of like you have to have the options ready for when a policy window appears and 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 they can then you know come into being on a larger scale because i think the the difficulty of a lot of this stuff is that it is it's so technical uh it's really complex you've got to try it out to figure out how it's going to work and then you've got to refine it like it takes a while to really develop high quality practices around new kinds of assessments so you've got to have that pretty much ready to go and maybe a group of schools sort of already doing it for it to then be a real option should that policy window ever appear So I'm sort of ambivalent between which of those routes things go, like either it just becomes an alternative that hopefully more and more schools could opt into, particularly as we perhaps enter a world where like, you know, maybe the sort of state mandated version of things becomes a bit less important and people are more willing to go for alternative versions of things, or where it's something that is just very ready for when the the kind of political and policy window appears.
1: Mm okay and and so i'm I'm interested in this idea of a policy window appearing like is this so are you talking about like the next time um there's an election and people are writing manifestos
0: it It can be that yeah, so it can absolutely be about like political cycles, but it can also be for example, you know if this time last year when we were all in lockdown or you know perhaps fifteen months ago um there had been a group of schools who were already doing an alternative form of assessment that was mostly school-based, that where good chunks of it could be carried out online, where it didn't rely on people sort of all taking exams in the same room on the same day, and then those all being um, sent off somewhere and marked. That could have been a very real option that suddenly a whole load of schools would have bought into. During lockdown. Now, I'm not. I'm not hoping we ever have to have another lockdown, but like there are sudden things that can sometimes happen that require whole new solutions, and we didn't seemingly have anything sort of ready to go at that point. Um, and maybe if we'd had a more sort of um, enterprising Secretary of State, you know, in the intervening year, we perhaps could have developed some better alternatives than we did, but. Um, I, yeah, I think realistically it takes a few years of work at least to develop this kind of stuff, and so um, the sooner, sooner we can get going, the better.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, I like it. I mean, it seems to me that it's that it's also um, about bringing people with you on a journey of change and bringing together like a diverse group of people as well. And it seems like like so much of the of the debate that we have. This, I mean, this is really just a sort of reflection of where my thinking is currently going. Really, um, lots of the, lots of the discussions that we see is essentially um, teachers talking to other teachers or educationists talking to other educationists, and sometimes you know you know, like in, in rethinking assessment, there's other people, there's like, you know, there's academics and neuroscientists and politicians, but that's quite rare, you know, it's quite, it's very welcome, but it's quite rare that you have these more, more voices, but they're still sort of educated, fairly wealthy, you know, like middle-class and upwards people who are sort of talking to one another. And um, and therefore, when like that, I don't think that that change is necessarily going to bring people along, unless you can also harness... Um You know the voices and the willpower of of people stakeholders from throughout the organization and this is this has really been my central insight from the work that i 've that I've done in in implementation science so far is to create like on a micro level we create what you call a vertical slice team mm-hmm. so you take a a, a cross section through the organization, so at the level of a school, say if they 're implementing a new behavior policy or feedback or whatever how they teach science, whatever it might be. You put a vertical size together that's got, you know, senior leaders, middle leaders, early career teachers, maybe the Senko, you know, maybe a student or a parent. It depends on what the what the change is that you're wanting to, to initiate. Um and you have them all sitting around a table together looking at this problem from the, the and and this change process from multiple perspectives. You consult with the wider community so that the kids go and talk to other kids, TAs go and talk to other teaching assistants, you know whatever senior leaders talk to other senior leaders and then the the, the decision making the the sort of the change mechanism if you like it operates like a glass box rather than a black box which is where most decisions are made right we don't get to see inside Mm -hmm. the cabinet Mm -hmm. we don't get to see inside the slt room very often and so the change mechanism is sort of like hidden and then we just get told about it at some staff briefing and everyone's like oh god not some new thing people hate being told what to do like you said (laughs) earlier people hate being told to change things even when that thing is a really good idea, like that's not how you do it. You have to bring people with you and to create this glass box decision-making process where people feel not just like one of those fake consultation things where you're yeah, pretending yeah. like the po- political parties is doing it sometimes, don't they? Oh, we're doing the big listen. And then they're just going to do whatever their focus groups and think tanks are going to tell them is, is the smart, where the smart money is. But to genuinely sort of build a coalition of the willing with a chorus of voices listening to, to marginalized voices as well, the parents of kids who've been excluded, excluded kids themselves, everybody inside the system, outside the system. And it's a difficult thing to do, but I think that this is where where things need to go. We need to start to bring people together so that they can see one another and hear one another. And especially, you know, you mentioned big change earlier and, and um the voices of parents, which is really welcome and that's also something that's got political clout isn't it like politicians pay attention to what parents say because parents vote
0: yeah 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 no i mean i think i think that is exactly exactly what is needed but particularly sort of that on a on like a fractal level so you know like fractals is in like each each part is like a smaller version of the previous part so if one imagines at every, at every sort of layer of decision-making, it needs to look like that with a glass box. I mm. think the mistake we would make is if we assume there's only one layer of decision-making. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so it's, but it's then every layer has to be thinking in terms of how can we make the sort of minimum number of decisions and be like the most enabling for, for the next layer Because I think often what we tend to have is like, okay, well, a group of people who sort of think they have a set of good ideas are like, right, it should all be XYZ and we'll sort of tighten it all up and screw in all the screws and right, it's ready to go. Here's the model. And what we instead want to create is like one layer is like, okay, I'm gonna make a few really good, you know, planks and a few really good screws, and then sort of hand those to the next layer and be like, how would you like to put them together? and then they hand them to the next, and it's like, and what would you like to put in it? So I think we have to sort of work out what are the pieces that need to happen centrally. Um, so a few things about like, you know, maybe a sort of reporting form of reporting that can then be understood nationally, um, and then hand as much as possible to to a next layer.
1: Yeah, I, I love it. Fractal implementation there's the title of my next book maybe we maybe we should co-write it
0: you can have that one it,
1: <laughs> it sounds it sounds more proactive than waiting for a policy window to open. <laughs> okay, sure.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: i like it um yeah love it okay so um is there anything else that you would that you um see in terms of like how are we going to get from where we are to where we want to be you must have you must have talked about this with Valerie a lot as you were writing this. What what do you see as the next steps? And also I'd be interested to hear like what kind of reception have you had from the book? Because like like me, you you wrote you wrote, you know, quite a, quite a, a challenging to read book. Like it's not, you know, like it's an academic book. Um and it landed in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> when <laughs> teachers are like on their yeah. knees and it's like not the ideal that's not the ideal policy window to be landing a book about how we need to do things fundamentally differently.
0: No, it's true. It's certainly not, and I think um you know i I don't know i I guess we we wrote it basically because we wanted people to be equipped with just like a whole bunch of research and ideas, like Valerie often talks about this in terms of sort of if there were a politician who is interested in doing something differently in education or a school leader who is interested in like running some process with their with their school and they just don't have the time because they're incredibly busy people to sort of actually you know do any sort of original research around it we wanted to be able to hand them something to say like okay here's where you can here's where you can start um so so we hope it will just get picked up you know more and more over time there's definitely been been some really nice responses um so far and we had a we had a launch event at the LSE recently with um Andreas Schleicher who's director of the OECD and he was very um has been a Kind supporter of it, and he's very know um, uh, yeah, wants to sort of you know promote more of a conversation about about the purpose of education, and likewise with some of the the big change work that's going to be happening. You know, I, I think this is just the beginning of a of a conversation that's being held in in many places. So we hope it will just be be a tool for those conversations, be something that can um, slightly shift the the sense of things that people feel they can bring in um, bring into those conversations. Um, the other sense of sort of next steps I think we have a little bit towards the end of the book around like signaling our values around education um some of the social movement theories about how change happens place a lot of emphasis on this thing of knowing that other people have the same um, values as you or or kind of want the same things as you um and again there's been some interesting research around this by populists that uh a lot of young people assume that what their parents want is for them to be like to do well in school to like do well in in tests and exams um but actually what parents say they want is you know for their children to be happy in school to enjoy school and uh, but a lot of parents likewise assume that others what others want from school is for you know for, for their kids to be successful so we've got a little bit perhaps of this sort of um, inaccurate um just like perceptions going on where everybody sort of thinks that everybody else is um just focused on this big competition and if they take their foot off the gas for a second others are going to steam ahead and so we've got to just keep kind of buying into this endless rat race when we sort of saw last year that like if you give everybody simultaneously uh an opportunity to stand back from that like yes there was a lot of um a lot of things that were very difficult about the lockdowns but there was and I think more and more people are admitting this now like there was a great sense of relief to some extent of just being able to stop <laughs> and and sort of having to just like stop um so I think that is something that we need to we need to keep talking about like we really we only get to do this whole life thing once and it really shouldn't take something as horrific as a global pandemic for us to just get a chance to like stop and sort of do things a bit differently so um i think i think that is something that that signaling to each other of like what do we really value here like what do we really want um can we trust each other that like if i don't go for that big you know opportunity here or that big sort of badge of merit over here you'll still think of me as like a decent person and like a worthwhile human being like can we actually trust each other to sort of make those decisions to just like Stop! Stop! Perhaps chasing after some of the stuff that isn't so worthwhile.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've certainly uh, really appreciated the, the that that the, the pandemic has afforded us the, the the stop the stop just schlepping around on trains pointlessly. I can work really effectively. It turns out through screens, and I get to hang out with my dog a lot more, and I claw back about four hours a day in commuting plus all the time and you know I do more exercise I spend more time in nature like it's like a win-win-win-win-win and lots of people I think are starting to reevaluate what's important like you say you know life isn't isn't a rehearsal and I think I just wanted I just wanted just to go back on something that I said earlier I said that politics is a lost cause I don't think that politics is a lost cause but I do think that it's often downstream of culture Mm -hmm. and I don't I don't see it as like as as a place where policies are initiated and then sort of like cascaded down they follow the wind don't they they're they're what do you call the thing the weather vein politics politicians are weather vanes, of course because they want to keep getting voted in and they're going to go with whatever their advisors tell them is uh is going to be popular um but if we can if we can harness the the the, the clear sort of energy and the momentum that has started through Lots of different organisations, many of which we've already talked about today, as a as a side effect of this pandemic, um, and grow it into some sort of a of a of an ongoing like torrent of of you know reasons for change and stories and sharing stories and you know connecting with one another and seeing what's out there, cross pollinating ideas. Um, it's like we're not we're not operating in a vacuum here lots of the ideas in your book are already really well established and working Mm -hmm. and you know we can definitely spread those um far and wide
0: no i agree absolutely i think the only way to adjust that image just in case it's helpful for people is to think about this stuff as like mutually interacting or sort of like a like a complex adaptive system so sort of things can influence each other so I wouldn't necessarily agree that like one thing is downstream of the other but little things that happen in one area can have big influences elsewhere and so things being picked up and and sort of particular ideas particular words even or terms that can be massively amplified by politics I think can have an influence on culture and so yeah still encourage people you know wherever possible just to be putting things out into the world to contribute to that torrent and 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 perhaps looking for the places where you can try to kind of strategically amplify things
1: crowbar open that window <laughs> yeah. yes yeah thank you all right well let's wrap it up there for now um i have really enjoyed speaking with you today amelia i really appreciate you taking uh, a big chunk out of your day uh, thank you very much for the amazing work that you and Valerie have done on this book and all of the stuff that you're doing more widely. Um I think it's brilliant and uh and I really look forward to seeing how your work progresses in the in the weeks, months and years ahead.
0: <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, I, I really appreciate you doing these. It's uh I was a little daunted at first by the length, but it is a real a real opportunity to go deeply into some stuff. So yeah, I really appreciate that. Time is a
1: measure of change. Time is a measure of change We don't have much Time, time is a measure of change